Chapter One of the Marie Antoinette Romances, Volume Five, The Countess of Charny. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. The New Men at the Wheel. It was on the first of October, seventeen ninety-one that the new legislative assembly was to be inaugurated over France. King Louis XVI, captured with Queen Marie Antoinette and the royal family, while attempting to escape from the kingdom and join his brothers and the other princes abroad, was held in a kind of detention, like imprisonment without hard labor, in the Tuileries Palace in Paris. His fate hung on the members of the new House of Representatives. Let us hasten to see what they were. The Congress was composed of seven hundred and forty-five members, four hundred lawyers of one kind or another, some seventy literary men, seventy priests who had taken the oath to abide by the Constitution not yet framed, but to which the King had subscribed on the sketch. The remaining two hundred odd were landholders, farming their own estates or hiring them out to others. Among these was Francois Billet, a robust peasant of forty-five, distinguished by the people of Paris and France as a hero, from having been mainly instrumental in the taking of the Bastille, regarded as the embodiment of the ancient tyranny now almost leveled with the dust. Billet had suffered two wrongs at the hands of the king's men and the nobles, which he had sworn to avenge as well on the classes as on the individuals. His farmhouse had been pillaged by Paris policemen, acting under a blank warrant signed by the king, and issued at the request of Andrea de Tavernay, Countess of Charny, the queen's favorite, as her husband the count was reckoned to. She had a spite against Billet's friend, Dr. Honor Gilbert, a noted patriot and politician. In his youth, this afterward distinguished physician had taken advantage of her census, being steeped in a mesmeric swoon, to lower her pride. Thanks to this trance, and from his overruling love, he was the progenitor of her son, Sebastian Emile Gilbert. But with all the pride of this paternity, he was haunted by unceasing remorse. Andrea could not forgive this crime, all the more as it was a thorn in her side since her marriage. It was a marriage enforced on her, as the Count of Charny had been caught by the king on his knees to the queen, and to prevent the stupid monarch being convinced by this scene that there was truth in the tattle at court, that Count Charny was Marie Antoinette's paramour. She had explained that he merely was suing for the hand of her friend Andrea. The king's consent given, this marriage took place, but for six years the couple dwelt apart. Not that mutual love did not prevail between them, but neither was aware of the affection each had inspired in the other at first sight. The new countess thought that Charny's affection for the queen was a guilty and durable one, while he— believing his wife by compulsion a saint on earth, dared not presume on the position which fate and devotion to their sovereign had imposed on them both. 
this devotion was confirmed on the count's part cemented by blood for his two brothers valence and isidore had lost their lives in defending the king and queen from the revolutionists andrea had a brother philip who also loved the queen but he had been offended by her amour with charny and being touched by an american republican fever while fighting with lafayette for the liberation of the thirteen colonies he had quitted the court of france on his way he had wounded gilbert whom he learned to be his sister's wronger as well as having stolen away her infant son but although the wound would have been mortal under other treatment it had been healed by the wondrous medicaments of joseph balsamo alias count cagliostro the celebrated head of the invisibles a branch of the orient freemasons dedicated to overthrow the monarchy and set up a republic after the united states model in france if not in europe gilbert and cagliostro were therefore fast friends to say nothing of the latter's regret that he should have set temptation in the young man's way it was he who had plunged andrea into the magnetic slumber from which she had awakened a maid no longer but some recompense had come to the proud lady after the six years wedded life to the very man she adored though fate and misunderstanding had estranged them on learning what a martyr she had been through the unconscious motherhood count george had more than forgiven her he worshipped her and in their country seat at borzon eighteen miles from france he was forgetting in her lovely arms the demands of his queen his king and his caste to use his influence in the political arena this silence on his part led to the candidature of farmer belay being unimpeded besides charny would hardly have moved in opposition to the latter as one cause of the enmity of the peasant was his daughter's ruin by viscount isidore charny the death of the latter not being by belay's hand had not appeased the grudge he was a stern unrelenting man and just as he would not forgive his daughter catherine for her dishonor or even look upon her son he stood out uncompromisingly against the nobles and the priests charny had stolen his daughter the clergy in the person of his parish priest father fortier had refused burial to his wife on her grave he had vowed eternal hostility to the nobles and the clericals the farmer had great power at election time and they employed ten twenty or thirty hands and though the suffrage was divided into two classes at the period the result depended on the rural vote as each man quitted belay at the grave he shook him by the hand saying it is a sure thing brother belay had gone home to his lonely farm easy on this score for the first time he saw a plain way of returning the noble class and royalty all the harm they had done him he felt but did not reason and his thirst for vengeance was as blind as the blows he had received his daughter had come home to nurse her mother and receive at the last gasp her blessing for her son born in shame 
but Belay had said never a word to her. None could tell if he were aware of her flitting through the farm. Since a year he had not uttered her name, and it was the same as if she had never existed. Her only friend was Ange Petou, a poor peasant lad whom Belay had harbored when he was driven from home by his Aunt Angelique. As Catherine was really the ruler of the roast on the farm, it was but natural that Petou should offer her some part of the gratitude Belay had earned. This excellent feeling expanded into love, but there was little chance for the peasant when the girl had been captivated by the elegant young lord. Although the elevation common during the revolution had exalted Ange into a captaincy of the National Guards. But Petou had never swerved in his love for the deluded girl. He had a heart of gold. He was deeply sorry that Catherine had not loved him. But on comparing himself with young Charny, he acknowledged that she must prefer him. He envied Isidore, but he bore Catherine no ill will. Quite otherwise, he still loved her with profound and entire devotion. To say this dedication was completely exempt from anguish is going too far. But the pangs which made Petou's heart ache at each new token of Catherine's love for her dead lover showed his ineffable goodness. All his feeling for Catherine when Isidore was slain at Vahans, where Belay arrested the king in his flight, was of utter pity. Quite contrary to Belay, he did justice to the young noble in the way of grace, generosity, and kindness, though he was his rival without knowing it. Like Catherine, he knew that the barriers of caste were insurmountable, and that the Viscount could not have made his sweetheart his wife. The consequence was that Petou perhaps more loved the widow in her sorrow than when she was the coquettish girl. But it came to pass that he almost loved the little orphan boy like his own. Let none be astonished, therefore, that after taking leave of Belay like the others, Ange went toward Herimont instead of Belay's farm, which might also be his home. But he had lodgings at Herimont village, where he was born, and he was chief of the National Guards there. They were so accustomed to his sudden departures and unexpected returns that nobody was worried at them. When he went away, they said to one another, "'He has gone to town to confer with General Lafayette.' For the French lieutenant of General Washington was the friend, here as there, of Dr. Gilbert, who was their fellow peasant's patron, and had furnished the funds to equip the Haramont Company of Volunteers.' On their commander's return, they asked news of the capital, and as he could give the freshest and truest, thanks to Dr. Gilbert, who was in honorary position to the king, as well as friend of Cogliostro, in other words, the communicator between the two laden jars of the revolution, Petou's predictions were sure to be realized in a few days, so that all continued to show him blind trust, as well as military captain as political prophet. On his part, Gilbert knew all that was good and self-sacrificing in the peasant. He felt that he was a man to whom he might at the scratch entrust his life or Sebastian's, a treasure or a commission, anything confided to strength and loyalty. Every time Petou came to Paris, the doctor would ask him if he stood in need of anything, without the young man coloring up, and while he would always say, 
"'Nothing. Thank you, Dr. Gilbert.' This did not prevent the physician giving him some money, which Patou engulfed in his pocket. A few gold pieces, with what he picked up in the game shot or trapped in the Duke of Orleans' woods, were a fortune. So rarely did he find himself at the end of his resources when he met the doctor and had his supply renewed. Knowing then how friendly Patou was with Catherine and her baby, it will be understood that he hastily separated from Belay to know how his cast-off daughter was getting on. His road to Heramont took him past a hut in the woods where lived a veteran of the wars, who, on a pension and the privilege of killing a hare or a rabbit each day, lived a happy hermit's life, remote from man. Father Clovis, as this old soldier was called, was a great friend of Pitou. He had taught the boy to go gunning, and also the military drill by which he had trained the Haramont guards to be the envy of the county. When Catherine was banished from her father's, after Belay had tried to shoot Isidore, his hut sheltered her till after the birth of her son. On her applying once more for the like hospitality, he had not hesitated. And when Pithou came along, she was sitting on the bed with tears on her cheek at the revival of sad memories and her boy in her arms. On seeing the newcomer, Catherine set down the child and offered her forehead for Pitou's kiss. He gladly took her two hands, kissed her, and the child was sheltered by the arch formed with his stooping figure. Dropping on his knees to her and kissing the baby's little hands, he exclaimed, "'Never mind. I am rich. Master Isidore shall never come to want.' Pitou had twenty-five gold louis, which he reckoned to make him rich. Keen of his wit and kind of heart, Catherine appreciated all that is good. "'Thank you, Captain Pitou,' she said. "'I believe you, and I am happy in so believing, for you are my only friend. And if you were to cast me off, we should stand alone in the world. But you never will, will you?' "'Oh, don't talk like that!' cried Pitou, sobbing. "'You will make me pour out all the tears in my body.' "'I was wrong. Excuse me,' she said. "'No, no, you are right. I am a fool to blubber.' "'Captain Pitou,' said Catherine, "'I should like an airing.' give me your arm for a stroll under the trees i fancy it will do me good i feel as if i were smothering myself added patou the child had no need of air nothing but sleep so he was laid abed and catherine walked out with patou five minutes after they were in the natural temple under the huge trees without being a philosopher on a level with voltaire or rousseau Pitou understood that he and Catherine were atoms, carried on by the whirlwind. But these atoms had their joy and grief, just like the other atoms called king, queen, nobles. The mill of God, held by fatality, ground crowns and thrones to dust at the same time, and crushed Catherine's happiness no less harshly than if she wore a diadem. Two years and a half before, Pitou was a poor peasant lad, 
hunted from home by his aunt angelique received by Belay, feasted by catherine and cut out by isidore at present Angepetou was a power he wore a sword by his side and epaulettes on his shoulders he was called a captain and he was protecting the widow and son of the slain viscount isidore relatively to Petou, the expression was exact of danton who when asked why he was making the revolution replied to put on high what was undermost and send the highest below all but though these ideas danced in his head he was not the one to profit by them and the good and modest fellow went on his knees to beg catherine to let him shield her and the boy like all suffering hearts catherine had a finer appreciation in grief than in joy Petou, who was in her happy days a lad of no consequence became the holy creature he really was in other words a man of goodness candor and devotion the result was that unfortunate and in want of a friend she understood that Petou was just the friend she wished and so always received by catherine with one hand held out to him and a witching smile Petou began to lead a life of bliss of which he never had had the idea even in dreams of paradise during this time Belay, still mute as regarded his daughter pursued his idea of being nominated for the house while getting in his harvest only one man could have beaten him if he had the same ambition but entirely absorbed in his love and happiness the count of charny the world forgetting believed himself forgotten by the world he did not think of the matter enjoying his unexpected felicity hence nothing opposed Belay's election in belair cotteret district and he was elected by an immense majority as soon as chosen he began to turn everything into money it had been a good year he set aside his landlord's share reserved his own put aside the grain for sowing and the fodder for his livestock and the cash to keep the workfolks going and one morning sent for Petou. now and then Petou paid him a visit Belay always welcomed him with open hand made him take meals if anything was on the board or wine or cider if it was the right time for drinks but never had Belay sent for Petou. hence it was not without disquiet that the young man proceeded to the farm Belay was always grave nobody could say that he had seen a smile pass over his lips since his daughter had left the farm this time he was graver than usual still he held out his hand in the old manner to Petou, shook his with more vigor than usual and kept it in his while the other looked at him with wonder Petou, you are an honest fellow said the farmer faith i believe i am replied Petou. i am sure of it you are very good master Belay. it follows that as i am going away i shall leave you at the head of my farm impossible there are a lot of petty matters for which a woman's eye is indispensable i know it replied Belay. 
you can select the woman to share the superintendence with you i shall not ask her name i don't want to know it and when i come down to the farm i shall notify you a week ahead so she will have time to get out of the way if she ought not to see me or i see her very well master belay said the new steward now in the granary is the grain for sowing also the hay and other fodder for the cattle and in this drawer you see the cash to pay the hands he opened a drawer full of hard money stop a bit master how much is in this drawer i do not know rejoined belay locking the drawer and giving the key to patou with the words when you want more ask for it patou felt all the trust in this speech and put out his hand to grasp the others but was checked by his humility nonsense said belay why should not honest men grasp hands if you should want me in town rest easy i shall not forget you it is two o'clock i shall start for paris at five at six you might be here with the woman you choose to second you right but then there is no time to lose said patou i hope we shall soon meet again dear master belay belay watched him hurrying away as long as he could see him and when he disappeared he said now why did not catherine fall in love with an honest chap like that rather than one of those noble vermin who leaves her a mother without being a wife and a widow without her being wed it is needless to say that belay got upon the villers cotterets stage to ride to paris at five and that at six catherine and little isidore re-entered the farm Billet found himself among young men in the house, not merely representatives, but fighters, for it was felt that they had to wrestle with the unknown. They were armed against two enemies, the clergy and the nobility. If these resisted, the orders were for them to be overcome. The king was pitied, and the members were left free to treat him as occasion dictated. It was hoped that he might escape the threefold power of the queen, the clergy, and the aristocracy. If they upheld him, they would all be broken to pieces with him. They moved that the title of majesty should be suppressed. "'What shall we call the executive power, then?' asked the voice. "'Call him the King of the French,' shouted Belay. It's a pretty title enough for Capet to be satisfied with. Moreover, instead of a throne, the king of the French had to content himself with a plain armchair, and that was placed on the left of the speakers, so that the monarch should be subordinated. In the absence of the king, the constitution was sworn to by the sad, cold house, all aware that the impotent laws would not endure a year. All these motions were equivalent to saying, 
there is no longer a king. Money, as usual, took fright. Down went the stocks dreadfully, and the bankers took alarm. There was a revulsion in favor of the king, and his speech in the house was so applauded that he went to the theater that evening in high glee. That night he wrote to the powers of Europe that he had subscribed to the Constitution. So far the house had been tolerant, mild to the refractory priests and paying pensions to the princes and nobles who had fled abroad. We shall see how the nobles recompensed this mildness. When they were debating on paying the old and infirm priests, though they might be opposed to the Reformation, news came from Avignon of a massacre of revolutionists by the religious fanatics and a bloody reprisal of the other party. As for the runaway nobles, still drawing revenue from their country, this is what they were doing. They reconciled Austria with Prussia, making friends of two enemies. They induced Russia to forbid the French ambassador going about the St. Petersburg streets, and sent a minister to the refugees at Koblenz. They made Bern punish a town for singing the It Shall Go On. They led the kings to act roughly. Russia and Sweden sent back with unbroken seals Louis the Sixteenth's dispatches announcing his adhesion to the Constitution. Spain refused to receive it, and a French revolutionist would have been burned by the Inquisition only for his committing suicide. Venice threw on St. Mark's place the corpse of a man strangled in the night by the Council of Ten, with the plain inscription, This was a Freemason. The Emperor and the King of Prussia did answer, but it was by a threat. Quote, we trust we shall not have to take precautions against the repetition of events promising such sad auguries. Hence, there was a religious war in La Vendée, and in the South, with prospective war abroad. At present, the intention of the crowned heads was to stifle the revolution rather than cut its throat. The defiance of aristocratic Europe was accepted, and instead of waiting for the attack, the orator of the house cried for France to begin the movement. The absentee princes were summoned home on penalty of losing all rights to the succession. The nobles' property was seized, unless they took the oath of allegiance to the country. The priests were granted a week to take the oath, or to be imprisoned, and no churches could be used for worship unless by the sworn clergy. Lafayette's party wished the king to oppose his veto to these acts, but the queen so hated Lafayette that she induced the court party to support Petion instead of the general for the post of mayor of Paris. Strange blindness in favor of Petion her rude jailer, who had brought her back from the flight to Varennes. On the 19th of December, the king vetoed the bill against the priests. That night, at the Jacobin Club, the debate was hot. Verschot, a Swiss, offered the society a sword for the first general who should vanquish the enemies of freedom. Is not the wrath of the house, a southerner, drew the sword and leaped up into the rostrum, crying, 
behold the sword of the exterminating angel it will be victorious france will give a loud call and all the people will respond the earth will then be covered with warriors and the foes of liberty will be wiped out from the list of men ezekiel could not have spoken better this drawn sword was not to be sheathed for war broke out within and without the switzer's sword was first to smite the king of france the foreign sovereigns afterward end of chapter one recording by john van stan savannah georgia When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 2 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gilbert's Candidate Dr. Gilbert had not seen the Queen for six months, since he had let her know that he was informed by Cogliostro that she was deceiving him. He was therefore astonished to see the King's valet enter his room one morning. He thought the King was sick and had sent for him but the messenger reassured him. He was wanted in the palace, whither he hastened to go. He was profoundly attached to the king. He pitied Marie Antoinette more as a woman than a queen. It was profound pity, for she inspired neither love nor devotion. The lady waiting to greet Gilbert was the Princess Elizabeth, neither king nor queen. After his showing them he saw they were playing him false, had dared to send directly to him they put Lady Elizabeth forward. Her first words proved to the doctor that he was not mistaken in his surmise. "'Dr. Gilbert,' said she, "'I do not know whether others have forgotten the tokens of interest you showed my brother on our return from Versailles, and those you showed my sister on our return from Varennes. But I remember—' "'Madame,' returned gilbert bowing god in his wisdom hath decided that you should have all the merits memory included a scarce virtue in our days and particularly so among royal personages i hope you are not referring to my brother who often speaks of you and praises your experience as a medical adviser remarked gilbert smiling yes but he thinks you can be a physician to the realm as well as to the ruler very kind of the king for which case is he calling me in at present it is not the king who calls you sir but i responded the lady blushing for her chaste heart knew not how to lie you your health worries me the least your pallor arises from fatigue and disquiet not from bad health 
you are right i am not trembling for myself but my brother who makes me fret so he does me madame oh our uneasiness does not probably spring from the same cause as i am concerned about his health i do not mean that he is unwell but he is downcast and disheartened some ten days ago i am counting the days now he ceased speaking except to me and in his favorite pastime of backgammon he only utters the necessary terms of the game it is eleven days since he went to the house to present his veto why was he not mute that day instead of the next is it your opinion that he should have sanctioned that impious decree demanded the princess quickly my opinion is that to put the king in front of the priests in the coming tide the rising storm is to have priests and king broken by the same wave what would you do in my poor brother's place doctor a party is growing like those genii of the arabian nights which becomes a hundred cubits high an hour after release from the imprisoning bottle you allude to the jacobins gilbert shook his head no i mean the girondists who wish for war a national desire but war with whom with the emperor our brother the king of spain our nephew our enemies dr gilbert are at home and not outside of france in proof of which she hesitated but he besought her to speak i really do not know that i can tell you though it is the reason of my asking you here you may speak freely to one who is devoted and ready to give his life to the king do you believe there is any counterbane she inquired universal queried gilbert smiling no madame each venomous substance has its antidote though they are of little avail generally what a pity there are two kinds of poisons mineral and vegetable of what sort would you speak doctor i am going to tell you a great secret one of our cooks who left the royal kitchen to set up a bakery of his own has returned to our service with the intention of murdering the king this red-hot jacobin has been heard crying that france would be relieved if the king were put out of the way in general men fit for such a crime do not go about bragging beforehand but i suppose you take precautions yes it is settled that the king shall live on roast meat with a trusty hand to supply the bread and wine as the king is fond of pastry madame campin orders what he likes as though for herself we are warned especially against powdered sugar in which arsenic might be mixed unnoticed 
exactly it was the queen's habit to use it for her lemonade but we have entirely given up the use of it the king the queen and i take meals together ringing for what we want madame capon brings us what we like secretly and hides it under the table we pretend to eat the usual things while the servants are in the room this is how we live sir and yet the queen and i tremble every instant lest the king should turn pale and cry out he was in pain let me say at once madame returned the doctor that i do not believe in these threats of a poisoning but in any event i am under his majesty's orders what does the king desire that i should have lodgings in the palace i will stay here in such a way as to be at hand until the fears are over oh my brother is not afraid the princess hastened to say i did not mean that until your fears are over i have some practice in poisonings and their remedies i am ready to baffle them in whatever shape they are presented but allow me to say madame that all fears for the king might be removed if he were willing oh what must be done for that intervened a voice not the lady elizabeth's and which by its emphatic and ringing tone made gilbert turn it was the queen and he bowed has the queen doubted the sincerity of my offers oh sir so many heads and hearts have turned in this tempestuous wind that one knows not whom to trust which is why your majesty receives from the fouillance club a premier shaped by the baroness de Stael. you know that cried the royal lady starting i know your majesty is pledged to take count louis de narbon and of course you blame me no it is a trial like others when the king shall have tried all he may finish by the one with whom he should have commenced you know madame de Stael. what do you think of her physically she is not altogether attractive the queen smiled as a woman she was not sorry to hear another woman decried who just then was widely talked about but her talent her parts her merits she is good and generous madame none of her enemies would remain so after a quarter of an hour's conversation i speak of her genius sir politics are not managed by the heart madame the heart spoils nothing not even in politics but let us not use the word genius rashly madame de Stael has great and immense talent but it does not rise to genius she is as iron to the steel of her master rousseau as a politician she is given more heed than she deserves her drawing-room is the meeting-place of the english party coming of the middle class as she does and that the money-worshipping middle class she has the weakness of loving a lord she admires the english from thinking that they are an aristocratic people 
being ignorant of the history of england and the mechanism of its government she takes for the descendants of the norman conquerors the baronets created yesterday with old material other people make a new stock with the new england often makes the old do you see in this why baroness de Stael proposes the narbonne to us <laughs> this time madame two likings are combined that for the aristocracy and the aristocrat do you imagine that she loves louis de narbonne on account of his descent louis de narbonne was supposed to be an incestuous son of king louis the fifteenth it is not on account of any ability i reckon but nobody is less well born than louis de narbonne his father is not even known only because one dares not look at the sun so you do not believe that de narbonne is the outcome of the swedish embassy as the jacobins assert with robespierre at the head yes only he comes from the wife's boudoir not the lord's study to suppose lord de stal has a hand in it is to suppose that he is master in his own house goodness no this is not an ambassador's treachery but a loving woman's weakness nothing but love the great eternal magician could impel a woman to put the gigantic sword of the revolution in that frivolous rake's hand do you allude to the demagogue isnard kissed at the jacobin club alas madame i speak of the one suspended over your head therefore it is your opinion that we are wrong to accept in our ball as minister of war you would do better to take at once his successor dumouriez a soldier of fortune <laughs> the worst word is spoken and it is unfair anyway was not dumouriez a private soldier i am well aware that dumouriez is not of that court nobility to which everything is sacrificed of the rustic nobility unable to obtain a rank he enlisted as a common soldier at twenty years he fought five or six troopers though hacked badly and despite this proof of courage he languished in the ranks he sharpened his wits by serving louis the fifteenth as spy why do you call that spying in him which you rate diplomacy in others i know that he carried on correspondence with the king without the knowledge of the ministers but what noble of the court does not do the same but doctor this man whom you recommend is essentially a most immoral one exclaimed the queen betraying her deep knowledge of politics by the details into which she went he has no principles no idea of honour the duke of choiseul told me that he laid before him two plans about corsica one to set her free the other to subdue her 
quite true. But Choiseul failed to say that the former was preferred, and that Dumouriez fought bravely for its success. The day when we accept him for minister, it will be equivalent to a declaration of war to all Europe. Why, madame, this declaration is already made in all hearts, retorted Gilbert. Do you know how many names are down in this district as volunteers to start for the campaign? Six hundred thousand! In the Jura, the women have proposed all the men shall march, as they, with pikes, will guard their homes. You have spoken a word which makes me shudder. Pikes! Oh, the pikes of eighty-nine! I can ever see the heads of my life-guardsmen carried on the pike's point. Nevertheless, it was a woman, a mother, who suggested a national subscription to manufacture pikes. Was it also a woman who suggested your Jacobins adopting the red cap of liberty, the color of blood? Your Majesty is in error on that point, said Gilbert, although he did not care to enlighten the Queen wholly on the ancient headgear. A symbol was wanted of equality, and as all Frenchmen could not well dress alike, a part of the dress was alone adopted, the cap such as the poor peasant wears. The red collar was preferred not as it happens to be that of blood, but because gay, bright, and a favorite with the masses. "'Oh, very fine, doctor,' sneered the queen. "'I do not despair of seeing such a partisan of novelties coming some day "'to feel the king's pulse, with the red cap on your head and a pike in your hand.' "'Seeing that she could not win with such a man, "'the queen retired half jesting, half bitter. "'Princess Elizabeth was about to do the same when Gilbert appealed to her.' You love your brother, do you not? Love. The feeling is of adoration. Then you are ready to transmit good advice to him. Coming from a friend? Then speak, speak. When his foyant ministry falls, which will not take long... Let him take a ministry with all the members wearing this red cap, though it so alarms the queen. And profoundly bowing, he went out. End of chapter 2 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 3 of The Countess of Charny by Alexander Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain powerful perhaps happy never the narbonne ministry lasted three months a speech of vergniaud blasted it on the news that the empress of russia had made a treaty with turkey and austria and prussia had signed an alliance offensive and defensive he sprung into the rostrum and cried I see the palace from here, where this counter-revolution is scheming those plots which aim to deliver us to Austria. 
the day has come when you must put an end to so much audacity and confound the plotters out of that palace have issued panic and terror in olden times in the name of despotism let them now rush into it in the name of the law dread and terror did indeed enter the tuileries whence the narbonne wafted thither by a breath of love was expelled by a gust of storm this downfall occurred at the beginning of march seventeen ninety two scarce three months after the interview of gilbert and the queen a small active nervy little man with flaming eyes blazing in a bright face was ushered into king louis's presence he was aged fifty-six but appeared ten years younger though his cheek was brown with campfire smoke he wore the uniform of a camp marshal the king cast a dull and heavy glance on the little man whom he had never met but it was not without observation the other fixed on him a scrutinizing eye full of fire and distrust you are general du maurier count de narbonne i believe called you to paris to announce that he gave me a division in the army in alsace but you did not join it appears sire i accepted but i felt that i ought to point out that as war impended louis started visibly and threatened to become general went on the soldier without appearing to remark the emotion i deemed it good to occupy the south where an attack might come unawares consequently it seemed urgent to me that a plan for movements there should be drawn up and a general and army sent thither yes and you gave this plan to count de narbonne after showing it to members of the gironde they are friends of mine as i believe they are of your majesty then i am dealing with a girondist queried the monarch smiling with a patriot a faithful subject of his king louis bit his thick lips was it to serve the king and the country the more efficaciously that you refuse to be foreign minister for a time sire i replied that i preferred to being any kind of minister the command promised me i am a soldier not a statesman i have been assured on the contrary that you are both observed the sovereign i am praised too highly sire it was on that assurance that i insisted yes sire but in spite of my great regret i was obliged to persist in refusing why refuse because it is a crisis it has upset de narbonne and compromises Lassau. any man has the right to keep out of employment or be employed according to what he thinks he is fitted for now my liege 
i am good for something or for nothing if the latter leave me in my obscurity who knows for what fate you draw me forth if i am good for something do not give me power for an instant the premier of a day but place some solid footing under me that i may be your support at another day our affairs your majesty will pardon me already regarding his business as mine our affairs are in too great disfavor abroad for courts to deal with in ad interim ministry this interregnum you will excuse the frankness of an old soldier no one was less frank than dumouriez but he wanted to appear so at times this interval will be a blunder against which the house will revolt and it will make me disliked there more i must say that it will injure the king who will seem still to cling to his former cabinet and only be waiting for a chance to bring it back were that my intention do you not believe it possible sir i believe sire that it is full time to drop the past and make myself a jacobin as you have said to my valet laporte forsooth did your majesty this it would perplex all the parties and the jacobins most of all why not straightway advise me to don the red cap i wish i saw you in it said dumouriez for an instant the king eyed with distrust the man who had thus replied to him and then he resumed so you want a permanent office i am wishing nothing at all only ready to receive the king's orders still i should prefer them to send me to the frontier to retaining me in town but if i give you the order to stay and the foreign office portfolio in permanency what will you say that your majesty has dispelled your prejudices against me returned the general with a smile well yes entirely general you are my premier sire i am devoted to your service but restrictions explanations sire the first minister's place is not what it was without ceasing to be your majesty's faithful servant on entering the post i become the man of the nation from this day do not expect the language my predecessors used i must speak according to the constitution and liberty confined to my duties i shall not play the courtier i shall not have the time and 
i drop all etiquette so as to better serve the king i shall only work with you in private or at the council and i warn you that it will be hard work hard work why why it is plain almost all your diplomatic corps are anti-revolutionists i must urge you to change them cross your tastes on the new choice propose officials of whom your majesty never so much as heard the names and others who will displease in which case quickly interrupted louis then i shall obey when your majesty's repugnance is too strong and well-founded as you are the master but if your choice is suggested by your surroundings and is clearly made to get me into trouble i shall entreat your majesty to find a successor for me sire think of the dreadful dangers besieging your throne and that one must have the public confidence in support sire this depends on you let me stay you a moment i have long pondered over these dangers he stretched out his hand to the portrait of charles i of england by van dyck and continued while wiping his forehead with his handkerchief this would remind me if i were to forget them it is the same situation with similar dangers perhaps the scaffold of whitehall is erecting on city hall plus you are looking too far ahead my lord only to the horizon in this event i shall march to the scaffold as charles i did not perhaps as knightly but at least as like a christian proceed general dumouriez was checked by this firmness which he had not expected sire allow me to change the subject as you like i only wish to show that i am not daunted by the prospect they try to frighten me with but that i am prepared for even this emergency if i am still regarded as your minister of foreign affairs i will bring four dispatches to the first consul i notify your majesty that they will not resemble those of previous issue in style or principles they will suit the circumstances if this first piece of work suits your majesty i will continue if not my carriage will be waiting to carry me to serve the king and country on the border and whatever may be said about my diplomatic ability added de maurier war is my true element 
and the object of my labors these thirty-six years wait said the other as he bowed before going out we agree on one point but there are six more to settle my colleagues yes i do not want you to say that you are hampered by such a one choose your cabinet sir sire you are fixing grave responsibility on me i believe i am meeting your wishes by putting it on you sire i know nobody at paris save one lacoste whom i propose for the navy office lacoste a clerk in the naval stores i believe questioned the king who resigned rather than connive at some foul play that's a good recommendation what about the others i must consult petillon brissot condorcet the girondists in short yes sire let the gironde pass we shall see if they will get us out of the ditch better than the other parties we have still to learn if the four dispatches will suit we might learn that this evening we can hold an extraordinary council composed of yourself grave and guervie dupont has resigned but do not go yet i want to commit you he had hardly spoken before the queen and princess elizabeth stood in the room holding prayer-books ladies said the king this is general dumouriez who promises to serve us well and will arrange a new cabinet with us this evening dumouriez bowed while the queen looked hard at the little man who was to exercise so much influence over the affairs of france do you know dr gilbert she asked if not make his acquaintance as an excellent prophet three months ago he foretold that you would be count de narbonne's successor the main doors opened for the king was going to mass behind him dumouriez went out but the courtiers shunned him as though he had the leprosy i told you i should get you committed whispered the monarch committed to you but not to the aristocracy returned the warrior it is a fresh favor the king grants me whereupon he retired at the appointed hour he returned with four dispatches promised for spain prussia england and austria he read them to the king and messieurs grave and guerville but he guessed that he had another auditor behind the tapestry by its shaking the new ruler spoke in the king's name but in the sense of the constitution without threats but also without weakness he discussed the true interests of each power relatively to the french revolution as each had complained of the jacobin pamphlets 
he ascribed the despicable insults to the freedom of the press, a sun which made weeds to grow as well as good grain to flourish. Lastly, he demanded peace in the name of a free nation, of which the king was the hereditary representative. The listening king lent fresh interest to each paper. "'I never heard the like, General,' he said when the reading was over. "'That is how ministers should speak and write in the name of rulers,' observed Guerville. "'Well, give me the papers. They shall go off to-morrow,' the king said. "'Sire, the messengers are waiting in the palace yard,' said Dumouriez. I wanted to have a duplicate made, to show the queen, objected the king with marked hesitation. I foresaw the wish, and have copies here, replied Dumouriez. Send off the dispatches, rejoined the king. The general took them to the door, behind which an aide was waiting. Immediately the gallop of several horses was heard leaving the Tuileries together. "'Be it so,' said the king, replying to his mind as the meaning sounds died away. "'Now, about your cabinet?' "'Monsieur Guerville pleads that his health will not allow him to remain, and—' Monsieur Grave, stung by a criticism of Madame Roland, wishes to hold office until his successor is found. I therefore pray your majesty to receive Colonel Servin, an honest man in the full acceptation of the words, of a solid material, pure manners, philosophical austerity, and a heart like a woman's, with all an enlightened patriot, a courageous soldier, and a vigilant statesman. Colonel Servan is taken. So we have three ministers, Dumouriez for the foreign office, Servan for war, and Lacoste for the navy. Who shall be in the treasury? Clavier if you will he is a man with great financial friends and supreme skill in handling money be it so as for the law lord a lawyer of bordeaux has been recommended to me Duranton. belonging to the gironde party of course Yes, sire, but enlightened, upright, a very good citizen, though slow and feeble. We will infuse fire into him, and be strong enough for all of us. The home department remains. The general opinion is that this will be fitted to Roland. You mean Madame Roland? To the Roland couple. I do not know them, but I am assured that the one resembles a character of Plutarch, 
and the other a woman from Livy. Do you know that your cabinet is already called the Breachless Ministry? I accept the nickname, with the hope that it will be found without breaches. We will hold the council with them the day after tomorrow. General Dumouriez was going away with his colleagues, when a valet called him aside and said that the king had something more to say to him. "'The king or the queen?' he questioned. "'It is the queen, sir, but she thought there was no need for those gentlemen to know that.' And Weber, for this was the Austrian foster-brother of Marie Antoinette, conducted the general to the queen's apartments, where he introduced him as the person sent for. Dumouriez entered, with his heart beating more violently than when he led a charge or mounted the deadly breach. He fully understood that he had never stood in worse danger. The road he traveled was strewn with corpses, and he might stumble over the dead reputations of premiers, from Calon to Lafayette. The queen was walking up and down with a very red face. She advanced with a majestic and irritated air as he stopped on the sill, where the door had been closed behind him. "'Sir, you are all-powerful at this juncture,' she said, breaking the ice with her customary vivacity. "'But it is by favor of the populace who soon shatter their idols. You are said to have much talent. Have the wit to begin with, to understand that the king and I will not suffer novelties. Your constitution is a pneumatic machine. Royalty stifles in it for want of air. So I have sent for you to learn, before you go further, whether you side with us or with the Jacobins. Madame, responded Dumouriez, I am pained by this confidence although i expected it from the impression that your majesty was behind the tapestry which means that you have your reply ready it is that i stand between king and country but before all i belong to the country the country sneered the queen is the king no longer anything that everybody belongs to the country and none to him excuse me lady uh, the king is always the king but he has taken oath to the constitution and from that day he should be one of the first slaves of the constitution a compulsory oath and in no way binding, sir. Dumouriez held his tongue for a space, and being a consummate actor, he regarded the speaker with deep pity. Madame, he said at length, allow me to say that your safety, the king's, your children's, all, are attached to this constitution which you deride and which will save you 
if you consent to be saved by it i should serve you badly as well as the king if i spoke otherwise to you the queen interrupted him with an imperious gesture oh sir sir i assure you that you are on the wrong path she said adding with an indescribable accent of threat take heed for yourself madame replied dumouriez in a perfectly calm tone i am over fifty years of age my life has been traversed with perils and on taking the ministry i said to myself that ministerial responsibility was not the slightest danger i ever ran fie sir returned the queen slapping her hands together you have nothing more to do than to slander me slander you madame yes do you want me to explain the meaning of the words i used it is that i am capable of having you assassinated for shame sir tears escaped from her eyes dumouriez had gone as far as she wanted he knew that some sensitive fibre remained in that indurated heart lord forbid i should so insult my queen he cried the nature of your majesty is too grand and noble for the worst of her enemies to be inspired with such an idea she has given heroic proofs which i have admired and which attached me to her then excuse me and lend me your arm i am so weak that i often fear i shall fall in a swoon turning pale she indeed drooped her head backward was it reality or only one of the wiles in which this fearful medea was so skilled keen though the general was he was deceived or else more cunning than the enchantress he feigned to be caught believe me madame he said that i have no interest in cheating you i abhor anarchy and crime as much as yourself believe too that i have experience and am better placed than your majesty to see events what is transpiring is not an intrigue of the duke of orleans as you are led to think not the effect of pitt's hatred as you have supposed not even the outcome of popular impulse but the almost unanimous insurrection of a great nation against inveterate abuses i grant that there is in all this great hates which fan the flames leave the lunatics and the villains on one side let us see nothing in this revolution in progress but the king and the nation all tending to separate them brings about 
their mutual ruin i come my lady to work my utmost to reunite them aid me instead of thwarting me you mistrust me am i an obstacle to your anti-revolutionary projects tell me so madame i will forthwith hand my resignation to the king and go and wail the fate of my country and its ruler in some nook no no said the queen remain and excuse me do you ask me to excuse you oh madame i entreat you not to humble yourself thus why should i not be humble am i still a queen am i yet treated like a woman going to the window she opened it in spite of the evening coolness the moon silvered the leafless trees of the palace gardens are not the air and the sunshine free to all well these are refused to me i dare not put my head out of window either on the street or the gardens yesterday i did look out on the yard when a guard's gunner hailed me with an insulting nickname and said how i should like to carry your head on a bayonet point this morning i opened the garden window a man standing on a chair was reading infamous stuff against me a priest was dragged to a fountain to be ducked and meanwhile as though such scenes were matters of course children were sailing their balloons and couples were strolling tranquilly what times we are living in what a place to live in what a people and would you have me still believe myself a queen and even feel like a woman she threw herself on a sofa and hid her face in her hands de maurier dropped on one knee and taking up the hem of her dress respectfully he kissed it lady he said from the time when i undertake this struggle you will become the mighty queen and the happy woman once more or i shall leave my life on the battlefield rising he saluted the lady and hurried out she watched him go with a hopeless look repeating the mighty queen perhaps thanks to your sword for it is possible but the happy woman never 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 she let her head fall between the sofa cushions muttering the name dearer every day and more painful charny the dumouriez cabinet might be called one of war on the first of march the emperor leopold died in the midst of his italian harem slain by self-compounded aphrodisiacs 
the queen who had read in some lampoon that a penny pie would settle the monarchy and who had called dr gilbert in to get an antidote cried aloud that her brother was poisoned with him passed all the halting policy of austria francis the second who mounted the throne was of mixed italian and german blood an austrian born at florence he was weak violent and tricky the priests reckoned him an honest man his hard and bigoted soul hid its duplicity under a rosy face of dreadful sameness he walked like a stage ghost he gave his daughter to a conqueror rather than part with his estate and then stabbed him in the back at his first retreating step in the snows francis the second remains in history the tyrant of the leads of venice and the spitzberg dungeons and the torturer of andrein and silvio pellico this was the protector of the french fugitives the ally of prussia and the enemy of france he held ambassador noailles as a prisoner at vienna the french ambassador to berlin Sigur, was preceded by a rumor that he expected to gain the secrets of the king of prussia by making love to his mistresses this king of prussia was a lady-killer Sigur presented himself at the same time as the envoy from the self-exiled princes at Koblenz. The king turned his back on the French representative, and asked pointedly after the health of the Prince of Artois. These were the two ostensible foes. The hidden ones were Spain, Russia, and England. The chief of the coalition was to be the king of Sweden, that dwarf in giant's armor whom Catherine the Second held up in her hand. With the ascension of Francis, the diplomatic note came. Austria was to rule in France, Avignon was to be restored to the Pope, and things in France were to go back to where they stood in June 1789. This note evidently agreed with the secret wishes of the king and the queen. Dumouriez laughed at it but he took it to the king. As much as Marie Antoinette, the woman for extreme measures, desired a war which she believed one of deliverance for her, the king feared it, as the man for the medium, slowness, wavering, and crooked policy. Indeed, suppose a victory in the war. He would be at the mercy of the victorious general. Suppose a defeat, and the people would hold him responsible, cry treason, and rush on the palace. In short, should the enemy penetrate to Paris, what would it bring? The king's brother, Count Provence, who aimed to be regent of the realm? The result of the return of the runaway princes would be the king deposed, Marie Antoinette pronounced an adulteress, and the royal children proclaimed, perhaps, illegitimate. The king trusted foreigners, but not the princes of his own blood and kingdom. On reading the note, he comprehended that the hour to draw the sword for France had come, and that there was no receding. Who was to bear the flag of the revolution? Lafayette, who had lost his fame by massacring the populace on the Paris parade ground? Lucknay, who was known only by the mischief he wrought in the Seven Years' War? and old Rochambeau, 
the French naval hero in the American Revolution, who was for defensive war and was vexed to see de Maurier promote young blood over his head without benefiting by his experience. It was expected that Lafayette would be victorious in the North. When he would be commander-in-chief, de Maurier would be the minister of war. They would cast down the red cap and crush Jacobins and Girondists with the two hands. The counter-revolution was ready. But what were Robespierre and the Invisibles doing? That great secret society which held the agitators in its grasp, as Jove holds the writhing thunderbolts? Robespierre was in the shade, and many asserted that he was bribed by the royal family. At the outset all went well for the royalists. Lafayette's lieutenants, two royalists, Dion and Biron, headed a rout before Lee. The scouts, dragoons, still the most aristocratic arm of the service, turned tail and started a panic. The runaways accused the captains of treachery and murdered Dion and the other officers. The Gironde accused the queen and court party of organizing the flight. The popular clamor compelled Marie Antoinette to let the Constitutional Guard be abolished, another name for a royal lifeguard, and it was superseded by the Paris National Guards. Ah, oh, Charny, Charny, where were you? You, who at Varennes nearly rescued the Queen, with but three hundred horsemen. What would you not have done at Paris with six thousand desperados? Charny was happy, forgetting everything in the arms of his countess. End of chapter three. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter four of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Foes Face to Face While the Queen was looking from the palace to see the Austrians coming, another was watching in her little reception rooms. One was revolution embodied, the other its opponents intensified. That was Madame Roland, this the Queen from Austria. The real war at this period was between this pair— a singular thing. Both had such influence over their husbands as to lead them to death, although by different roads. Dumouriez had thrown a sop to the Jacobins without knowing who the Colonel Servant was whom he took for Minister of War. He was a favorite of Madame Roland. Like all the Girondists of whom she was the light, the fire, the Egeria, he was inspired by that valiant spirit but he and Roland were neutralized at the council by de Maurier. They had forced the royalist constitutional guards to disband, but they had merely changed their uniform for that of the Swiss guards, the sworn defenders of royalty, and swaggered about the streets more insolently than before. Madame Roland suggested that, on the occasion of the July festivals, a camp of twenty thousand volunteers should be established in Paris. Servan was to present this as a citizen, apart from his being a minister. In the same way, Roland was to punish the rebellious priests who were preaching from the pulpits that taxpayers would be damned by ordering their exile. Dumouriez supported the volunteer proposition at the council, 
in the hope that the newcomers would be Jacobins, that is, the invisibles by whom neither the Girondists nor the Foyants would profit. "'If your majesty vetoes it,' he said firmly, "'instead of the twenty thousand authorized, we shall have forty thousand unruly spirits in town, who may with one rush upset constitution, assembly, and the throne. Had we been vanquishers, but we must give in. I say, accept. But the queen urged the king to stand firm. As we know, she would rather be lost than be saved by Lafayette. As for the decree against the priests, it was another matter. The king said that he wavered in temporal questions as he judged them with his mind, which was fallible. But he tried religious matters with his conscience, which was infallible. But they could not dispense with Dumouriez at this juncture. "'Except the volunteer act,' said the queen at last. "'Let the camp be at Soissons, where the general says he will gradually draft them off out of the way. And, well, we will see about the decree aimed at the priests. Dumouriez has your promise, but there must be some way of evading the issue when you are the Jesuit's pupil.' Roland, Servan, and Clavier resigned, and the assembly applauded their act as deserving the thanks of the country. Hearing of this, and that Dumouriez was badly compromised, the pupil of Vauguillon agreed to the volunteer camp bill, but pleading conscientious scruples, deferred signing the decree banishing the refractory priests. This made the new ministers wince, and Dumouriez went away sore at heart. The king had almost succeeded in baffling him, the fine diplomatist, sharp politician, and the general whose courage was doubled by intrigue. He found at home the spies' reports that the invisibles were holding meetings in the working quarters and openly at Santerre's brewery. He wrote to warn the king whose answer was, "'Do not believe that I can be bullied.' My mind is made up. Dumouriez replied, asking for an audience, and requested his successor to be sought for. It was clear that the anti-revolutionist party felt strong. Indeed, they were reckoning on the following forces. The Constitutional Guards, six thousand strong, disbanded but ready to fly to arms at the first call, seven or eight thousand knights of the Order of St. Louis, whose red ribbon was the rallying token. Three battalions of Switzers, sixteen hundred men, picked soldiers unshaken as the old Helvetic rocks. Better than all, Lafayette had written, Persist, sire, fortified with the authority the National Assembly has delegated to you. You will find all good citizens on your side. The plan was to gather all the forces at a given signal seize the cannon of each section of Paris, shut up the Jacobins' clubhouse and the assembly, add all the royalists in the National Guard, say, a contingent of fifteen thousand men, and wait for Lafayette, who might march up in three days. The misfortune was that the Queen would not hear of Lafayette. Lafayette was merely the revolution moderated, and might prolong it and lead to a republic, 
like that he had brought round in America. While the Jacobins' outrageous rule would sicken the people and could not endure. Oh, had Charny been at hand! But it was not even known where he was. And were it known, it would be too low an abasement for the woman, if not the queen, to have recourse to him. The night passed tumultuously at the palace, where they had the means of defense and attack, but not a hand strong enough to grasp and hurl them. Dumouriez and his colleagues came to resign. They affirmed that they were willing to die for the king, but to do this for the clergy would only precipitate the downfall of the monarchy. Sire, pleaded Dumouriez, your conscience is misled. You are beguiled into civil war. Without strength, you must succumb, and history, while sorrowing for you, will blame you for causing the woes of France. Heaven be my witness that I wished but her happiness. I do not doubt that, but one must account to the king of kings not only for purity of intentions but the enlightened use of intentions you suppose you are saving religion but you will destroy it your priests will be massacred your broken crown will roll in your blood the queen's your children's perhaps oh my king my king choking he applied his lips to the royal hand with perfect serenity and a majesty of which he might not be believed capable louis replied you are right general i expect death and forgive my murderers beforehand you have well served me i esteem you and am affected by your sympathy. Farewell, sir. With Dumouriez going, royalty had parted with its last stay. The king threw off the mask and stood with uncovered face before the people. Let us see what the people were doing on their side. End of chapter 4 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Five of the Countess of Charny by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Uninvited Visitors. All day long, a man in general's uniform was riding about the Saint Antoine suburb, on a large Flanders horse, shaking hands right and left, kissing the girls and treating the men to drink. This was one of Lafayette's half dozen airs. The small change of the commander of the National Guard, Battalion Commander Santerre. Beside him rode on a fiery charger, like an aide next his general, a stout man who might, by his dress, be taken to be a well-to-do farmer. A scar tracked his brow, and he had as gloomy an eye and scowling a face as the battalion commander had an open countenance and frank smile. "'Get ready, my good friends. Watch over the nation.' against which traitors are plotting, but we are on guard. 
Santerre kept saying. "'What are we to do, friend Santerre?' asked the working men. "'You know that we are all your own. Where are the traitors? Lead us at them.' "'Wait. The proper time has not come.' "'When will it strike?' Santerre did not know a word about it, so he replied at a hazard. "'Keep ready.' will let you know that the man who rode by his knee bending down over the horse's neck would make signs to some men and whisper june twenty whereupon these men would call groups of twenty or so around each and repeat the date to them so that it would be circulated nobody knew what would be done on the twentieth of june but all felt sure that something would happen on that day by whom was this mob moved, stirred, and excited? By a man of powerful build, leonine mane and roaring voice, whom Santerre was to find waiting in his brewery office, Danton. None better than this terrible wizard of the revolution could evoke terror from the slums and hurl it into the old palace of Catherine de Medici's. Danton was the gong of riots, the blow he received he imparted vibratingly to all the multitude around him. Through Hibert he was linked to the populace, as by the Duke of Orléans he was affixed to the throne. Whence came his power, doomed to be so fatal to royalty? To the Queen, the spiteful Austrian who had not liked Lafayette to be mayor of Paris, but preferred Petion, the Republican who had no sooner brought back the fugitive king to the Tuileries than he set to watch him closely. Petion had made his two friends, Manuel and Danton, the public prosecutor and the vice, respectively. On the 20th of June, under the pretext of presenting a petition to the king and raising a liberty pole, the palace was to be stormed. The adepts alone knew that France was to be saved from the Lafayettes and the Moderates, and a warning to be given to the incorrigible monarch that there are some political tempests in which a vessel may be swamped with all hands aboard. That is, a king be overwhelmed with throne and family as in the oceanic abysses. Belay knew more than Santerre when he accompanied him on his tour after presenting himself as from the committee. Danton called on the brewer to arrange for the meeting of the popular leaders that night at Charenton, for the march on the morrow, presumably to the house, but really to the Tuileries. The watchword was, Have done with the palace! But the way remained vague. On the evening of the 19th, the queen saw a woman clad in scarlet, with a belt full of pistols, gallop bold and terrible along the main streets. It was Tyroigny Maricor, the beauty of Liege, who had gone back to her native country to help its rebellion. But the Austrians had caught her and kept her imprisoned for eighteen months. She returned mysteriously to be at the bloody feast of the coming day. The courtesan of opulence, she was now the beloved of the people, from her noble lovers had come the funds for her costly weapons, which were not all for show. Hence the mob hailed her with cheers. From the Tuileries garret, where the queen had climbed on hearing the uproar, 
she saw tables set out in the public squares and wine broached patriotic songs were sung and at every toast fists were shaken at the palace who were the guests the federals of marseilles led by barbaroux who brought with them the song worth an army the marseillaise hymn of liberty day breaks early in june at five o'clock the battalions were marshalled for the insurrection was regularized by this time and had a military aspect the mob had chiefs submitted to discipline and fell into assigned places under flags santerre was on horseback with his staff of men from the working district Bellet did not leave him, for the occult power of the Invisibles charged him to watch over him. Of the three corps into which the forces were divided, Santerre commanded the first, Saint-Hérouge the second, and Toroigny the last. About eleven, on an order brought by an unknown man, the immense mass started out. It numbered some twenty thousand when it left the Bastille Square. It had a wild, odd, and horrible look santerre's battalion was the most regular having many in uniform and muskets and bayonets among the weapons but the other two were armed mobs haggard thin and in rags from three years of revolutions and four of famine neither had uniforms nor muskets but tattered coats and smocks quaint arms snatched up in the first impulse of self-defense and anger pikes, cooking-spits, jagged spears, hiltless swords, knives lashed to long poles, broad axes, stone masons' hammers, and courier's knives. For standards, a gallows with a dangling doll meant for the queen, a bull's head with an obscene card stuck on the horns, a calf's heart on a spit with the motto, an aristocrat's, while flags showed the legends sanction the decrees or death recall the patriotic ministers tremble tyrant your hour has come at every crossing and from each byway the army was swollen the mass was silent save now and then when a cheer burst from the midst or a snatch of the it shall go on was sung or cries went up of the nation forever long live the breechless down with old Vito and Madame Vito. They came out for sport, to frighten the king and queen, and did not mean murdering. They demanded to march past the assembly through the hall, and for three hours they defiled under the eyes of their representatives. It was three o'clock. The mob had obtained half their program, the placing of their petition before the assembly, the next thing was to call on the king for his sanction to the decree. As the assembly had received them, how could the king refuse? Surely he was not a greater potentate than the speaker of the house, whose chair was like his and in the grander place. In fact, the king assented to receiving their deputation of twenty. As the common people had never entered the palace, they merely expected their representatives would be received while they marched by under the windows. They would show the king their banners with the odd devices and the gory standards. All the palace garden gates were closed. In the yards and gardens were soldiers with four field pieces. 
seeing this apparently ample protection, the royal family might be tranquil. Still, without any evil idea, the crowd asked for the gates to be opened which allowed entrance on the Fouillant's terrace. Three municipal officers went in and got leave from the king for passage to be given over the terrace and out by the stable doors. Everybody wanted to go in as soon as the gates were open, and the throng spread over the lawn. It was forgotten to open the outlet by the stables, and the crush began to be severe. They streamed before the National Guards in a row along the palace wall to the carousel gates, by which they might have resumed the homeward route. They were locked and guarded. Sweltering, crushed and turned about, the mob began to be irritated. Before its growls the gates were opened, and the men spread over the capacious square. There they remembered what the main affair was, to petition the king to revoke his veto. Instead of continuing the road, they waited in the square for an hour, when they grew impatient. They might have gone away, but that was not the aim of the agitators who went from group to group, saying, Stay, what do you want to sneak away for? The king is going to give his sanction. If we were to go home without that, we should have all our work to do over again. The level-headed thought this sensible advice, but at the same time that the sanction was a long time coming. Oh, they were getting hungry, and that was the general cry. Bread was not so dear as it had been, but there was no work going on, and however cheap bread may be, it is not made for nothing. Everybody had risen at five, workmen and their wives with their children, and come to the palace with the idea that they had but to get the royal sanction to have hard times end. But the king did not seem to be at all eager to give his sanction. It was hot, and thirst began to be felt. Hunger, thirst, and heat drive dogs mad. Yet the poor people waited and kept patient, but those next to the railings set to shaking them. A municipal officer made a speech to them. "'Citizens, this is the king's residence, and to enter with arms is to violate it. The king is quite ready to receive your petition, but only from twenty deputies bearing it.' "'What? Had not their deputation sent in an hour ago been attended to yet?' Suddenly loud shouts were heard on the streets. It was Santerre, Belay, and Herouge on their horses, and Torrini riding on her cannon. "'What are you fellows hanging round this gate for?' queried Herouge. "'Why do you not go right in?' "'Just so. Why haven't we?' said the thousands. "'Can't you see it as fast?' cried several voices. Torrini jumped off her cannon, saying— the barker is full to the muzzle. Let's blow the old gate open. Wait, wait, shouted two municipal officers. No roughness. It shall be opened to you. Indeed, by pressing on the spring catch, they released the two gates, which drew aside and the mass rushed through. Along with them came the cannon, which crossed the yard with them, mounted the steps and reached the head of the stairs in their company. Here stood the city officials in their scarfs of office. "'What do you intend doing with a piece of artillery?' they challenged. 
great guns in the royal apartments do you believe anything is to be gained by such violence quite right said the ringleaders astonished themselves to see the gun there and they turned it round to get it downstairs the hub caught on the jam and the muzzle gaped on the crowd why hang them all they have got cannon all over the palace commented the newcomers not knowing their own artillery police magistrate mouchet a deformed dwarf ordered the men to chop the wheel clear and they managed to hack the door jam away so as to free the piece which was taken down to the yard this led to the report that the mob were smashing all the doors in some two hundred noblemen ran to the palace not with the hope of defending it but to die with the king whose life they deemed menaced prominent among these was a man in black who had previously offered his breast to the assassin's bullet and who always leaped like a last life-guard between danger and the king from whom he had tried to conjure it this was gilbert after being excited by the frightful tumult the king and queen became used to it it was half-past three and it was hoped that the day would close with no more harm done suddenly the sound of the axe blows was heard above the noise of clamor like the howling of a coming tempest a man darted into the king's sleeping room and called out sire let me stand by you and i will answer for all it was dr gilbert seen at almost periodical intervals and in all the striking situations of the tragedy and play oh doctor is this you what is it king and queen spoke together the palace is surrounded and the people are making this uproar and wanting to see you we shall not leave you sire said the queen and princess elizabeth will the king kindly allow me for an hour such power as a captain has over his ship asked gilbert i grant it replied the monarch madame hearken to dr gilbert's advice and obey his orders if needs must he turned to the doctor will you answer to me for the queen and the dauphine i do or i shall die with them it is all a pilot can say in the tempest the queen wished to make a last effort but gilbert barred the way with his arm madame he said it is you and not the king who run the real danger rightly or wrongly they accuse you of the king's resistance so that your presence will expose him without defending him be the lightning conductor divert the bolt if you can then let it fall on me but save my children i have answered for you and them to the king follow me he said the same to princess lambaya who had returned lately from london and the other ladies and guided them to the council hall where he placed them in a window recess with the heavy table before them the queen stood behind her children innocence protecting unpopularity although she wished it to be the other way all is well thus said gilbert in the tone of a general commanding a decisive operation do not stir there came a pounding at the door 
which he threw open with both folds, and as he knew there were many women in the crowd, he cried, "'Walk in, citizenesses! The queen and her children await you!' The crowd burst in as through a broken dam. "'Where is the Austrian? Where is the Lady Vito?' demanded five hundred voices. It was the critical moment. "'Be calm,' said Gilbert to the queen, knowing that all was in heaven's hand and man was as nothing. "'I need not recommend you to be kind.' Preceding the others was a woman with her hair down, who brandished a sabre. She was flushed with rage, perhaps from hunger. "'Where is the Austrian cat? She shall die by no hand but mine!' she screamed. "'This is she,' said Gilbert, taking her by the hand and leading her up to the queen. "'Have I ever done you a personal wrong?' demanded the latter in her sweetest voice. "'I cannot say you have,' faltered the woman of the people, amazed at the majesty and gentleness of Marie Antoinette. "'Then why should you wish to kill me?' folks told me that you were the ruin of the nation faltered the abashed young woman lowering the point of her sabre to the floor then you were told wrong i married your king of france and am mother of the prince whom you see here i am a french woman one who will never more see the land where she was born in france alone i must dwell happy or unhappy alas i was happy when you loved me and she sighed the girl dropped the sword and and wept beg your pardon madame but i did not know what you were like i see you are a good sort after all keep on like that prompted gilbert and not only will you be saved but all these people will be at your feet in an hour. Entrusting her to some national guardsmen and the war minister, who came in with the mob, he ran to the king. Louis had gone through a similar experience. On hastening toward the crowd as he opened the bull's-eye room, the door panels were dashed in, and pikes, bayonets, and axes showed their points and edges. "'Open the doors!' cried the king. Servants heaped up chairs before him, and four grenadiers stood in front, but he made them put up their swords, as the flash of steel might seem a provocation. A ragged fellow with a knife-blade set on a pole darted at the king, yelling, "'Take that for your veto!' One grenadier, who had not yet sheathed his sword, struck down the stick with the blade, but it was the king, who, entirely recovering self-command, put the soldier aside with his hand and said let me stand forward sir what have i to fear amid my people taking a forward step louis the sixteenth with a majesty not expected in him and a courage strange heretofore in him offered his breast to the weapons of all sorts directed against him hold your noise thundered a stentorian voice in the midst of the awful din i want a word in here a cannon might have vainly sought to be heard in this clamour but at this voice all the vociferation ceased this was the butcher legendre 
he went up almost to touching the king, while they formed a ring around the two. Just then, on the outer edge of the circle, a man made his appearance, and behind the dread double of Danton, the king recognized Gilbert, pale and serene of face, the questioning glance implying, "'What have you done with the queen?' was answered by the doctor's smile to the effect that she was in safety. He thanked him with a nod. "'Sirrah!' began Legendre. This expression, which seemed to indicate that the sovereign was already deposed, made the latter turn as if a snake had stunned him. "'Yes, sir. I am talking to you. Vito!' went on Legendre. "'Just listen to us, for it is our turn to have you hear us. You are a double dealer who have always cheated us and would try it again.' so look out for yourself the measure is full and the people are tired of being your plaything and victim well i am listening to you sir rejoined the king and a good thing too do you know what we have come here for to ask the sanction of the decrees and the recall of the ministers here is our petition see Taking a paper from his pocket, he unfolded it and read the same menacing lines which had been heard in the house. With his eyes fixed on the speaker, the king listened and said, when it was ended, without the least apparent emotion, "'Sir, I shall do what the laws and the Constitution order me to do.' Come on!' broke in a voice. "'The Constitution is your high horse.' which lets you block the road of the whole country to keep france indoors for fear of being trampled on and wait till the austrians come up to cut her throat the king turned toward this fresh voice comprehending that it was a worse danger gilbert also made a movement and laid his hand on the speaker's shoulder i have seen you somewhere before friend remarked the king who are you he looked with more curiosity than fear though this man wore a front of terrible resolution ay you have seen me before sire three times once when you were brought back from versailles next at varennes and the last time here sire bear my name in mind for it is of ill omen it is Belay. at this the shouting was renewed and a man with a lance tried to stab the king but belay seized the weapon tore it from the wielder's grip and snapped it across his knee no foul play he said only one kind of steel has the right to touch this man the axe of the executioner i hear that a king of england had his head cut off by the people whom he betrayed. You ought to know his name, Louis. Don't you forget it. Shh, Belay, muttered Gilbert. Oh, you may say what you like, returned Belay, shaking his head. This man is going to be tried and doomed as a traitor. Yes, a traitor, yelled a hundred voices. Traitor! Traitor! Gilbert threw himself in between. 
fear nothing sire and try by some material token to give satisfaction to these madmen taking the physician's hand the king laid it on his heart you see that i fear nothing he said i receive the sacraments this morning let them do what they like with me as for the material sign which you suggest i should display are you satisfied taking the red cap from a bystander he set it on his own head the multitude burst into applause hurrah for the king shouted all the voices a fellow broke through the crowd and held up a bottle if fat old vito loves the people as much as he says prove it by drinking our health do not drink whispered a voice it may be poisoned drink sire i answer for the honesty said gilbert the king took the bottle and saying to the health of the people he drank fresh cheers for the king resounded sire you have nothing to fear said gilbert allow me to return to the queen go said the other gripping his hand more tranquil the doctor hastened to the council hall where he breathed still easier after one glance the queen stood in the same spot the little prince like his father was wearing the red cap in the next room was a great hubbub it was the reception of santerre who rolled into the hall where is this austrian wench demanded he gilbert cut slanting across the hall to intercept him hello dr gilbert said he quite joyfully who has not forgotten that you were one of those who opened the bastille doors to me replied the doctor let me present you to the queen present me to the queen growled the brewer you will not refuse will you faith i'll not i was going to introduce myself but as you are in the way monsieur santerre needs no introduction interposed the queen i know how at the famine time he fed at his sole expense half the saint antoine suburb santerre stopped astonished then his glance happening to fall embarrassed on the dauphin whose perspiration was running down his cheeks he roared here take that sweater off the boy don't you see he is smothering the queen thanked him with a look he leaned on the table and bending toward her he said in an undertone you have a lot of clumsy friends madame i could tell you of some who would serve you better an hour afterward all the mob had flowed away and the king accompanied by his sister entered the room where the queen and his children awaited him she ran to him and threw herself at his feet while the children seized his hands and all acted as though they had been saved from a shipwreck it was only then that the king noticed that he was wearing the red cap oh he said i had forgotten snatching it off with both hands he flung it far from him with disgust the evacuation of the palace was as dull and dumb as the taking had been gleeful and noisy 
astonished at the little result the mob said we have not made anything we shall have to come again in fact it was too much for a threat and not enough for an attempt on the king's life louis had been judged on his reputation and recalling his flight to varennes disguised as a serving man they had thought that he would hide under a table at the first noise and might be done to death in the scuffle like polonius behind the arras things had happened otherwise never had the monarch been calmer never so grand in the height of the threats and the insults he had not ceased to say behold your king the royalists were delighted for to tell the truth they had carried the day end of chapter 5 recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Six of the Countess of Charny by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The country is in danger. The king wrote to the assembly to complain of the violation of his residence, and he issued a proclamation to his people. So it appeared there were two peoples, the kings and those he complained of on the twenty-fourth the king and queen were cheered by the national guards whom they were reviewing and on the same day the paris directory suspended mayor petion who had told the king to his face that the city was not riotous whence sprung such audacity three days after the murder was out lafayette came to beard the assembly in its house taunted by a member who had said when he wrote to encourage the king in his opposition and to daunt the representatives he is very saucy in the midst of his army let us see if he would talk as big if he stood among us he escaped censure by a nominal majority a victory worse than a defeat lafayette had again sacrificed his popularity for the royalists he cherished a last hope with the enthusiasm to be kindled among the national guards by the king and their old commander he proposed to march on the assembly and put down the opposition while in the confusion the king should gain the camp at Malboige. it was a bold scheme but was almost sure in the state of minds unfortunately danton ran to petion at three in the morning with the news and the review was countermanded who had betrayed the king and the general the queen who had said she would rather be lost than owe safety to lafayette she was helping fate for she was doomed to be slain by danton but supposing she had less spite and the girondists might have been crushed they were determined not to be caught napping another time it was necessary to restore the revolutionary current to its old course for it had been checked and was running upstream the soul of the party mademoiselle roland hoped to do this by rousing the assembly she chose the orator vignard to make the appeal and in a splendid speech he shouted from the rostrum what was already circulating in an undertone the country is in danger the effect was like a water-spout the whole house even to the royalists spectators officials all were enveloped and carried away by this mighty cyclone 
all roared with enthusiasm. That same evening, Barbaru wrote to his friend Rebecchi at Marseilles, "'Send me five hundred men eager to die.' On the 11th of July, the assembly declared the country to be in danger, but the king withheld his authorization until the 21st, late at night. Indeed, this call to arms was an admission that the ruler was impotent, for the nation would not be asked to help herself unless the king could or would do nothing. Great terror made the palace quiver in the interval. As a plot was expected to break out on the 14th, the anniversary of the taking of the Bastille, a holiday. Robespierre had sent an address out from the Jacobin Club which suggested regicide. So persuaded was the court party that the king was induced to wear a shirt of mail to protect him against the assassin's knife, and Mademoiselle Campan had another for the queen who refused to don it. I should be only too happy if they would slay me she observed in a low voice. "'Oh, God, they would do me a greater kindness than thou didst in giving me life. They would relieve me of a burden.' Mademoiselle Campan went out, choking. The king, who was in the corridor, took her by the hand and led her into the lobby between his rooms and his sons, and, stopping, groped for a secret spring. It opened a press perfectly hidden in the wall, with edges guarded by the mouldings. A large portfolio of papers was in the closet, with gold coin on the shelves. The case of papers was so heavy that the lady could not lift it, and the king carried it to her rooms, saying that the queen would tell her how to dispose of it. She thrust it between the bed and the mattress, and went to the queen, who said, Come, pause. Those are documents fatal to the king if he were placed on trial, which the Lord forbid, particularly, which is why no doubt he confides it all to you. There is a report of a council in which the king gave his opinion against war. He made all the ministers sign it, and reckons on this document being as beneficial in event of a trial as the others may be hurtful. The July festival arrived. The idea was to celebrate the triumph of Petion over the king, that of murdering the latter not being probably entertained. Suspended in his functions by the assembly, Petion was restored to them on the eve of the rejoicings. At eleven in the morning, the king came down the grand staircase with the queen and the royal children. Three or four hundred thousand troops of unknown tendencies— escorted them. In vain did the queen seek on their faces some marks of sympathy. The kindest averted their faces. There was no mistaking the feeling of the crowd, for cheers for Petiol rose on all sides. As if, too, to give the ovation a more durable stamp than momentary enthusiasm, the king and the queen could read on all hats a lettered ribbon, Petiol forever. The queen was pale and trembling. Convinced that a plot was aimed at her husband's life, she started at every instant, fancying she saw a hand thrust out to bring down a dagger or level a pistol. On the parade ground, the monarch alighted, took a place on the left of the Speaker of the House, 
and with him walked up to the altar of the country. The queen had to separate from her lord here to go into the grand stand with her children. She stopped, refusing to go any further until she saw how he got on, and kept her eyes on him. At the foot of the altar, one of those rushes came which is common to great gatherings. The king disappeared as though submerged. The queen shrieked, and made as if to rush to him, but he rose into view anew, climbing the steps of the altar. Among the ordinary symbols figuring in these feasts, such as justice, power, liberty, etc., one glittered mysteriously and dreadfully under black crepe, carried by a man clad in black and crowned with cypress. This weird emblem particularly caught the queen's eye. She was riveted to the spot, and, while encouraged a little by the king's fate, she could not take her gaze from this somber apparition. Making an effort to speak, she gasped without addressing anyone especially. "'Who is that man dressed in mourning?' "'The death's man,' replied a voice which made her shudder. "'And what has he under the veil?' "'The axe which chopped off the head of King Charles the First. The queen turned round, losing color for she thought she recognized the voice. She was not mistaken. The speaker was the magician who had shown her the awful future in a glass at Tavernay, and warned her at Sèvres, and on her return from Varennes. Cogliostro, in fact. She screamed, and fell fainting into Princess Elizabeth's arms. One week subsequently, on the twenty-second, at six in the morning, all Paris was aroused by the first of a series of minute-guns. The terrible booming went on all through the day. At daybreak, the six legions of the National Guards were collected at the city hall. Two processions were formed throughout the town and suburbs to spread the proclamation that the country was in danger. Danton had the idea of this dreadful show, and he had entrusted the details to Sergent, the engraver, an immense stage manager. Each party left the hall at six o'clock. First marched a cavalry squadron, with the mounted band playing a funeral march, specially composed. Next, six field-pieces abreast where the roadway was wide enough or in pairs. Then, four heralds on horseback, bearing ensigns labeled Liberty, Equality, Constitution, Our Country. Then came twelve city officials, with swords by the sides and their scarfs on. Then, all alone, isolated like France herself, a National Guardsman, in the saddle of a black horse, holding a large tricolor flag on which was lettered, Citizens, the country is in danger. In the same order as the preceding, rolled six guns with weighty jolting and heavy rumbling, national guards and cavalry at the rear. On every bridge crossing and square, the party halted and silence was commanded by the ruffling of the drums. The banners were waved, and when no sound was heard and the crowd held their peace, the grave voice of the municipal crier arose, reading the proclamation and adding, "'The country is in danger!' This last line was dreadful 
and rang in all hearts. It was the shriek of the nation, of the motherland, of France. It was the parent calling on her offspring to help her. And ever and anon the guns kept thundering. On all the large open places platforms were run up for the voluntary enlistments. With the intoxication of patriotism, the men rushed to put their names down. Some were too old but lied to be inscribed, some too young but stood on tiptoe and swore they were full sixteen. Those who were accepted leaped to the ground, waving their enrollment papers and cheering on singing the Let It Go On and kissing the cannon's mouth. It was the betrothal of the French to war. This war of twenty-odd years, which will result in the freedom of Europe, although it may not altogether be in our time. The excitement was so great that the assembly was appalled by its own work. It sent men through the town to cry out, "'Brothers, for the sake of the country, no rioting! The court wishes disorder as an excuse for taking the king out of the city, so give it no pretext. The king should stay among us!' These dread sowers of words added in a deep voice, he must be punished. They mentioned nobody by name, but all knew who was meant. Every cannon report had an echo in the heart of the palace. Those were the king's room where the queen and the rest of the family were gathered. They kept together all day from feeling that their fate was decided this time, so grand and solemn. They did not separate until midnight when the last cannon was fired. On the following night, Mademoiselle Campin was aroused. She had slept in the queen's bedroom since a fellow had been caught there with a knife, who might have been a murderer. "'Is your majesty ill?' she asked, hearing a moan. "'I am always in pain, Campin, but I trust to have it over soon now.' "'Yes,' and she held out her pale hand in the moonbeam, making it seem all the whiter. In a month this same moonlight will see us free and disengaged from our chains. Oh, you have accepted Lafayette's offers, said the lady, and you will flee. Lafayette's help? Thank God, no, said the queen with repugnance there was no mistaking. No, but in a month my nephew Francis will be in Paris. Is your majesty quite sure? asked the royal governess, alarmed. Yes, all is settled, returned the sovereign. Alliances made between Austria and Prussia. Two powers who will march upon Paris in combination— we have the rout of the French princes and their allied armies, and we can surely say that on such and such a day they will be here or there. But do you not fear? Murder, the queen finished the phrase. I know that might befall, but they may hold us as hostages for their necks when vengeance impends. However, Nothing venture, nothing win. And 
when do the allied sovereigns expect to be in paris inquired madame campan between the fifteenth and twentieth of august was the reply god grant it said the lady but the prayer was not granted or if heard heaven sent france the succor she had not dreamed of the marseillaise hymn of liberty End of chapter 6. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 7 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Men from Marseille. We have said that Barbaroux had written to a friend in the south to send him five hundred men willing to die. Who was the man who could write such lines, and what influence had he over his friends? Charles Barbaroux was a very handsome young man of barely twenty-five, who was reproached for his beauty, and considered by Mademoiselle Roland as frivolous, and too generally amorous. On the contrary, he loved his country alone, or must have loved her best, for he died for her. Son of a hardy seafaring man, he was a poet and orator when quite young, at the breaking out of trouble in his native town during the election of Mirabeau. He was then appointed secretary to the Marseilles town board. Riots at Arles drew him into them, but the seething cauldron of Paris claimed him. The immense furnace which needed perfume, the huge crucible hissing for purest metal. He was Roland's correspondent at the South and Mademoiselle Roland had pictured from his regular, precise, and wise letters a man of forty, with his head bald from much thinking and his forehead wrinkled with vigils. The reality of her dream was a young man, gay, merry, light, fond of her sex, the type of the rich and brilliant generation flourishing in ninety-two, to be cut down in ninety-three. It was in this head esteemed too frivolous by mademoiselle roland that the first thought of the tenth of august was conceived perhaps the storm was in the air but the clouds were tossing about in all directions for barbaroo to give them a direction and pile them up over the tuileries when nobody had a settled plan he wrote for five hundred determined men the true ruler of france was the man who could write for such men and be sure of their coming Rebecki chose them himself out of the revolutionists who had fought in the last two years popular affrays in avignon and the other fiery towns they were used to blood they did not know what fatigue was by name on the appointed day they set out on the two hundred league tramp as if it were a day's strolling why not they were hardy seamen rugged peasants sunburned by the african simoom or the mountain gale with hands callous from the spade or tough with tar wherever they passed along they were hailed as brigands in a halt they received the words and music of rouget de lille's hymn to liberty sent as a viaticum by barbaroux to shorten the road the lips of the marseilles men made it change in character while the words were altered by their new emphasis. The song of brotherhood became one of death and extermination. Forever 
the Marseillaise. Barbaroux had planned to head with the Marseille men some 40,000 volunteers. Santerre was to have ready to meet them, overwhelm the city hall and the house, and then storm the palace. But Santerre went to greet them with only 200 men, not liking to let the strangers have the glory of such a rush. With ardent eyes, swart visages, and shrill voices, the little band strode through all Paris to the Champs-Élysées, singing the thrilling song. They camped there, awaiting the banquet on the morrow. It took place, but some grenadiers were arrayed close to the spot, a royalist guard set as a rampart between them and the palace. They divined they were enemies, and commencing by insults, they went on to exchanging fisticuffs. At the first blood, the Marseillais shouted, "'To arms!' raided the stacks of muskets and sent the grenadiers flying with their own bayonets. Luckily, they had the Tuileries at their backs and got over the drawbridge, finding shelter in the royal apartments. There is a legend that the queen bound up the wounds of one soldier. The Federals numbered five thousand. Marseille men, Bretons, and Dauphinois. They were a power not from their number, but their faith. The spirit of the revolution was in them. They had firearms, but no ammunition. They called for cartridges, but none were supplied. Two of them went to the mayor and demanded powder, or they would kill themselves in the office. Two municipal officers were on duty, Sergeant Danton's man, and Pani, Robespierre's. Sergeant had artistic imagination and a French heart. He felt that the young men spoke with the voice of the country. "'Look out, Pani,' he said. "'If these youths kill themselves, the blood will fall on our heads.' "'But if we deliver the powder without authorization, we risk our necks.' "'Never mind. I believe the time has come to risk our necks. "'In that case, everybody for himself,' replied Sergeant. "'Here goes for mine. You can do as you like.' He signed the delivery note, and Panny put his name to it. Things were easier now when the Marseille men had powder and shot. They would not let themselves be butchered without hitting back. As soon as they were armed, the Assembly received their petition and allowed them to attend the session. The Assembly was in great fear, so much so as to debate whether it ought not to transfer the meetings to the country. For everybody stood in doubt feeling the ground to quake underfoot and fearing to be swallowed. This wavering chafed the Southerners. No little disheartened, Barbaroux talked of founding a republic in the South. He turned to Robespierre to see if he would help to set the ball rolling. But the incorruptible's conditions gave him suspicions, and he left him saying, "'We will no more have a dictator than a king.' End of chapter 7. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 8 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Friend in Need. The very thing encouraging the Tuileries party was what awed the rebels. The palace had become a formidable fortress with a dreadful garrison. During the night of the 4th of August, the Swiss battalions had been drawn from out of the town into the palace. 
a few companies were left at Gaillon, where the king might take refuge. Three reliable leaders were beside the queen, Maillardet with his Switzers, Hervilly with the St. Louis Knights and the Constitutional Guard, and Mandat, who, as National Guard commander, promised twenty thousand devoted and resolute fighting men. On the evening of the 8th, a man penetrated the fort. Everybody knew him, so that he had no difficulty in passing to the Queen's rooms, where they announced Dr. Gilbert. "'Ah! Welcome! Welcome, doctor!' said the royal lady in a feverish voice. "'I am happy to see you.' He looked sharply at her, for on the whole of her face was such gladness and satisfaction that it made him shudder. He would sooner have seen her pale and disheartened. "'I fear I have arrived too late,' he said. "'It is just the other way, doctor,' she replied with a smile, an expression her lips had almost forgotten how to make. "'You come at the right time, and you are welcome. You are going to see what I have long yearned to show you, a king really royal.' "'I am afraid, madame, that you are deceiving yourself,' he returned, "'and that you will exhibit rather the commandant of a fort.' "'Perhaps, Dr. Gilbert, we can never come to a closer understanding "'on the symbolical character of royalty than on other matters. "'For me a king is not solely a man who may say, "'I do not wish, but one who can say, thus i will she alluded to the famous veto which led to this crisis yes madame said gilbert and for your majesty a king is a ruler who takes revenge who defends himself she retorted for you know we are openly threatened and are to be attacked by an armed force we are assured that five hundred desperados from Marseilles, headed by one Barbaroux, took an oath on the ruins of the Bastille not to go home until they had camped on the ruins of the Tuileries. Indeed, I have heard something of the kind, remarked Gilbert. Which only makes you laugh? It alarms me, for the king and yourself, madame. So that you come to propose that we should resign and place ourselves at the mercy of Messieurs Barbaroux and his Marseilles bullies? I only wish the king could abdicate and guarantee, by the sacrifice of his crown, his life and yours and the safety of your children. Is this the advice you give us, doctor? It is and I humbly beseech you to follow it. Monsieur Gilbert, let me say that you are not consistent in your opinions. My opinions are always the same, madame, devoted to king and country. I wished him to be in accord with the Constitution. From this desire springs the different pieces of counsel which I have submitted. What is the one you fit to this juncture? One that you have never had such a good chance to follow. I say, get away. 
flee ha, you well know that it is possible and never could be carried out with greater facility you have nearly three thousand men in the palace nearer five thousand said the queen with a smile of satisfaction with double to rise at the first signal we give you have no need to give a signal which may be intercepted the five thousand will suffice what do you think we ought to do with them set yourself in their midst with the king and your august children dash out when least expected at a couple of leagues out take to horse and ride into normandy to gaillon where you are looked for you mean place ourselves under the thumb of general lafayette at least he has proved that he is devoted to you no sir no with my five thousand in hand and as many more ready to come at the call i like another course better to crush this revolt once for all oh madame how right he was who said you were doomed who was that sir a man whose name i dare not repeat to you but he has spoken three times to you silence said the queen turning pale we will try to give the lie to this prophet of evil madame i am very much afraid that you are blinded you think that they will venture to attack us the public spirit turns to this quarter and they reckon on walking in here as easily as they did in june this is not a stronghold nay but if you will come with me i will show you that we can hold out some time with joy and pride she showed him all the defensive measures of the military engineers and the number of the garrison whom she believed faithful that is a comfort madam he said but is not security you frown on everything let me tell you doctor your majesty has taken me round where you like will you let me take you to your own rooms now willingly doctor for i am tired give me your arm gilbert bowed to have this high favor most rarely granted by the sovereign even to her intimate friends especially since her misfortune when they were in her sitting-room he dropped on one knee to her as she took a seat in an armchair madame said he let me adjure you in the name of your august husband your dear ones your own safety to make use of the forces about you to flee and not to fight sir was the reply since the fourteenth of july i have been aspiring for the king to have his revenge i believe the time has come we will save royalty or bury ourselves under the ruins of the tuileries can nothing turn you from this fatal resolve nothing she held out her hand to him half to help him rise 
half to send him away. He kissed her hand respectfully, and rising, said, "'Will your majesty permit me to write a few lines which I regard as so urgent that I do not wish to delay one instant?' "'Do so, sir,' she said, pointing to a writing-table, where he sat down and wrote these lines. "'My lord, come. The queen is in danger of death if a friend does not persuade her to flee.' and I believe you are the only one who can have that influence over her. "'May I ask whom you are writing to, without being too curious?' demanded the lady. "'To the Count of Charny, madame,' was Gilbert's reply. "'And why do you apply to him?' "'For him to obtain from your majesty what I fail to do.' "'Count Charny is too happy,' to think of his unfortunate friends. "'He will not come,' said the queen. The door opened, and an usher appeared. "'The right honorable, the Count of Charny,' he announced, "'desiring to learn if he may present his respects to your majesty.' The queen had been pale, and now became corpse-like, as she stammered some intelligible words. "'Let him enter!' said gilbert heaven hath sent him charny appeared at the door in naval officer's uniform oh come in sir i was writing for you said the physician handing him the note hearing of the danger her majesty was incurring i came said the nobleman bowing madame for heaven's sake hear and heed what count charny says said gilbert his voice will be that of France. Respectfully saluting the lord and the royal lady, Gilbert went out, still cherishing a last hope. End of chapter 8 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 9 of The Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Charny on Guard On the night of the ninth of August, the royal family supped as usual. Nothing could disturb the king in his meals, but while Princess Elizabeth and Lady Lambaya wept and prayed, the queen prayed without weeping. The king withdrew to go to confession. At this time the doors opened and Count Charny walked in pale, but perfectly calm. "'May I have a speech with the king?' he asked as he bowed. "'At present I am the king,' answered Marie Antoinette. Charny knew this as well as anybody, but he persisted. "'You may go up to the king's room, Count, but I protest that you will very much disturb him.' "'I understand. He is with Mayor Petion.' "'The king is with his ghostly counsellor,' replied the lady, with an indescribable expression. "'Then I must make my report to your majesty as major-general of the castle,' said the count. "'Yes, if you will kindly do so.' "'I have the honour to set forth the effective strength of our forces.' "'The heavy horse guards under Rulliers and Verdier?' to the number of six hundred, are in battle array on the Louvre Ground Square. 
The Paris city foot guards are barracked in the stables. A hundred and fifty are drawn from them to guard at Toulouse House, at Need, the Treasury, and the Discount and Extra Cash Offices. The Paris Mounted Patrol, only thirty men, are posted in the Prince's Yard at the foot of the King's back stairs. Two hundred officers and men of the old lifeguards, a hundred young royalists, as many noblemen, making some four hundred combatants, are in the bull's-eye hall and adjoining rooms. Two or three hundred national guards are scattered in the gardens and courtyards. And lastly, fifteen hundred Swiss, the backbone of resistance, are taking position under the grand vestibule and the staircases which they are charged to defend. "'Do not all these measures set you at ease, my lord?' inquired the queen. "'Nothing can set me at ease when your majesty's safety is at stake,' returned the count. "'Then your advice is still for flight?' "'My advice, madame, is that you ought, with the king and the royal children, be in the midst of us.' The queen shook her head. "'Your majesty dislikes Lafayette. Be it so.' But you have confidence in the Duke of Liancourt, who is in Rouen, in the house of an English gentleman of the name of Canning. The commander of the troops in that province has made them swear allegiance to the king. The Sally Chimard Swiss regiment is echeloned across the road, and it may be relied on. All is still quiet. Let us get out over the swing bridge and reach the Etoile bars where three hundred of the horse guards await us. At Versailles, we can readily get together fifteen hundred noblemen. With four thousand, I answer for taking you wherever you like to go. I thank you, Lord Charny. I appreciate the devotion which made you leave those dear to you, to offer your services to a foreigner. The queen is unjust toward me replied charny my sovereign's existence is always the most precious of all in my eyes as duty is always the dearest of virtues duty yes my lord murmured the queen but i believe i understand my own when everybody is bent on doing theirs it is to maintain royalty grand and noble and to have it fall worthily, like the ancient gladiators who studied how to die with grace. Is this your majesty's last word? It is, above all, my last desire. Charny bowed, and as he met Mademoiselle Campan by the door, he said to her, Suggest to the princesses that they should put all their valuables in their pockets, as they may have to quit the palace without further warning. While the governess went to speak to the ladies, he returned to the queen and said, Madame, it is impossible that you should not have some hope beyond the reliance on material forces. Confide in me, for you will please bear in mind that at such a strait I will have to give an account to the Maker and to man for what will have happened. "'Well, my lord,' said the queen, 
an agent is to pay petion two hundred thousand francs and danton fifty thousand for which sums the latter is to stay at home and the other is to come to the palace are you sure of the go-betweens you said that petion had come which is something toward it hardly enough as i understood that he had to be sent for three times the token is in speaking to the king he is to touch his right eyebrow with his forefinger but if not arranged he will be our prisoner and i have given the most positive orders that he is not to be let quit the palace the ringing of a bell was heard what is that inquired the queen the general alarm rejoined charny the princesses rose in alarm what is the matter exclaimed the queen the tocsin is always the trumpet of rebellion madame said charny more affected by the sinister sound than the queen i had better go and learn whether the alarm means anything grave but we shall see you again asked she quickly i came to take your majesty's orders and i shall not leave you until you are out of danger bowing he went out the queen stood pensive for a space murmuring i suppose we had better see if the king has got through confessing while she was going out princess elizabeth took some garments off a sofa in order to lie down with more comfort from her fichu she removed a cornelian brooch which she showed to mademoiselle campan the engraved stone had a bunch of lilies and the motto forget offences forgive injuries i fear that this will have little influence over our enemies she remarked but it ought not be the less dear to us as she was finishing the words a gunshot was heard in the yard the lady screamed there goes the first shot said lady elizabeth alas it will not be the last mayor petion had come into the palace under the following circumstances he arrived about half-past ten he was not made to wait as had happened before but was told that the king was ready to see him but to arrive he had to walk through a double row of swiss guards national guards and those volunteer royalists called knights of the dagger still as they knew he had been sent for they merely cast the epithets of traitor and judas in his face as he went up the stairs petion smiled as he went in at the door of the room for here the king had given him the lie on the twentieth of june he was going to have ample revenge the king was impatiently awaiting ha ah, so you have come mayor petion he said what is the good word from paris petion furnished the account of the state of matters or at least an account have you nothing more to tell me demanded the ruler no replied petion wondering why the other stared at him louis watched for the signal that the mayor had accepted the bribe it was clear 
that the king had been cheated. Some swindler had pocketed the money. The queen came in as the question was put to Petion. "'How does our friend stand?' she whispered. "'He has not made any sign,' rejoined the king. "'Then he is our prisoner,' said she. "'Can I retire?' inquired the mayor. "'For God's sake, do not let him go,' interposed the queen. "'Not yet, sir. I have something yet to say to you,' responded the king, raising his voice. "'Pray step into this closet.' This implied to those in the inner room that Petion was entrusted to them, and was not to be allowed to go. Those in the room understood perfectly and surrounded Petion, who felt that he was a prisoner. He was the thirtieth in a room where there was not elbow room for four. "'Why, gentlemen, we are smothering here,' he said. "'I propose a change of air.' It was a sentiment all agreed with, and they followed him out of the first door he opened, and down into the walled-in garden, where he was as much confined as in the closet. To kill time, he picked up a pebble or two and tossed them over the walls. While he was playing thus and chatting with Roderay, attorney of the province, the message came twice that the king wanted to see him. "'No,' replied Petion. "'It is two hot quarters up there. I remember the closet, and I have no eagerness to be in it again. Besides, I have an appointment with somebody on the Fouillance Quay.' He went on playing at clearing the wall with stones. "'With whom have you an appointment?' asked Roderay. At this instant, the assembly door on the Fouillance Quay opened. "'I fancy this is just what I was waiting for,' remarked the mayor. "'Order to let Mayor Petion pass forth,' said a voice. "'The assembly demands his presence at the bar of the house to give an account of the state of the city.' "'Just the thing,' muttered Petion. "'Here I am,' he replied in a loud voice. I am ready to respond to the quips of my enemies. The National Guards, imagining that Petion was to be berated, let him out. It was nearly three in the morning. The day was breaking. A singular thing. The aurora was the hue of blood. End of chapter 9 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Ten of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Billet and Pitou. On being called by the king, Petion had foreseen that he might more easily get into the palace than out, so he went up to a hard-faced man marred by a scar on the brow. Farmer Billet, said he, "What was your report about the house?" that it would hold an all-night sitting. Very good, and what did you say you saw on the new bridge? Cannon and guards, placed by order of Colonel Manda. And you also stated that a considerable force was collected under St. John's Arcade, near the opening of St. Antoine Street? Yes, again, by order of Colonel Manda. 
Well, will you listen to me? Here you have an order to Manuel and Danton to send back to barracks the troops at St. John's Arcade, and to remove the guns from the bridge. At any cost, you will understand these orders must be obeyed. I will hand it to Danton myself. Good. You are living in St. Honor Street? Yes, Mayor. When you have given Danton the order, get home and snatch a bit of rest. About two o'clock, go out to the Foyant's Quay, where you will stand by the wall. If you see or hear stones falling over the other side of the wall, it will mean that I am a prisoner in the Tuileries and detained by violence. I understand. Present yourself at the bar of the house and ask my colleagues to claim me. You understand, Farmer Belay. I am placing my life in your hands. I will answer for it, replied the bluff farmer. Take it easy. Petion had therefore gone into the lion's den, relying on Belay's patriotism. The latter had spoken the more firmly as Petou had come to town. He dispatched the young peasant to Danton with the word for him not to return without him. Lazy as the orator was, Petou had a prevailing way, and he brought Danton with him. Danton had seen the cannon on the bridge and the National Guards at the end of the popular quarter, and he understood the urgency of not leaving such forces on the rear of the people's army. With Petion's order in hand, he and Manuel sent the guards away and removed the guns. This cleared the road for the revolution. In the meantime, Billet and Petou had gone on their old lodging in St. Honor Street, to which Petou bobbed his head as to an old friend. The farmer sat down and signified the young man was to do the same. "'Thank you, but I am not tired,' returned Petou, but the other insisted and he gave way. Petou, I sent for you to join me,' said the farmer. "'And you see I have not kept you waiting,' retorted the National Guard's captain, with his own frank smile showing all his thirty-two teeth. "'No, you must have guessed that something serious is afoot.' "'I suspected as much. But I say, friend Belay, I do not see anything of Mayor Bailey or General Lafayette. Bailey is a traitor, who nearly murdered the lot of us on the parade ground. Yes, I know that, as I picked you up there, almost swimming in your own blood. And Lafayette is another traitor who wanted to take away the king. I did not know that. Lafayette a traitor, eh? I never would have thought of that. And the king? He is the biggest traitor of the lot, Petou. I cannot say I am surprised at that, said Petou. He conspires with the foreigner and wants to deliver France to the enemy. The Tuileries is the center of the conspiracy, and we have decided to take possession of the Tuileries. Do you understand this, Petou? Of course I understand. But look here, Master Belay. 
We took the Bastille, and this will not be so hard a job. That's where you are out. What? More difficult when the walls are not so high? That's so, but they are better guarded. The Bastille had but a hundred old soldiers to guard it, while the palace has three or four thousand men. This is to say nothing of the Bastille having been carried by surprise, while the Tuileries folk must know we mean to attack, and will be on the lookout. They will defend it, will they? queried Petou. Yes, replied Belay. All the more, as the defense is trusted to Count Charny, they say. Indeed, he did leave Boursan with his lady by the post, observed Petou. Law, is he a traitor, too? No, he is an aristocrat, that is all. He has always been for the court, so that he is no traitor to the people. He never asked us to put any faith in him. So, it looks as though we will have a tussle with Lord Charny. It is likely, friend Ange. What a queer thing it is. Neighbors clapper-clawing. Yes, what is called civil war, Petou, but you are not obliged to fight unless you like. Excuse me, farmer, but it suits me from the time when it is to your taste. But I should even like it better if you did not fight. Why did you send for me, Master Belay? I sent for you to give you this paper, replied Belay with his face clouding. What is this all about? It is the draft of my will. Your will? cried Petou, laughing. Hang me, if you look like a man about to die. No, but I may be a man who will get killed, returned the revolutionist, pointing to his gun and cartridge box hanging on the wall. That's a fact, said Ange Petou. We are all mortal. So that I have come to place my will in your hands as the sole legatee. No, I thank you, but you are only saying this for a joke. I am telling you a fact. But it cannot be. When a man has rightful heirs, he cannot give away his property to outsiders. You are wrong, Petou. He can. Then he ought not. I have no heirs, replied Belay, with a dark cloud passing over his face. No heirs? How about heiresses, then? What do you call Miss Catherine? I do not know anybody of that name, Petou. Come. Come, farmer, do not say such things. You make me sad. Patu, from the time when something is mine, it is mine to give away in the same way. Should I die, what I leave to you will be yours, to deal with as you please, 
to be given away as freely good yes exclaimed the young man who began to understand then if anything bad happens to you but how stupid i am nothing bad could happen to you you yourself said just now that we are all mortal so i did but well i do not know but that you are right i take the will master billet but is it true that if i fall heir i can do as i please with the property no doubt since it will be yours and you understand you are a sound patriot patou they will not stand you off from it as they might folk who have connived with the aristocrats it's a bargain said patou who was getting it into his brain i accept then that is all i have to say to you put the paper in your pocket and go to sleep what for because we shall have some work to do to-morrow no this day for it is two in the morning are you going out master billet only as far as the river you are sure you do not want me on the other hand you would be in my way i suppose i might have a bite and a sup then of course i forgot to ask if you might not be hungry because you know i am always hungry said pitou laughing i need not tell you where the larder is no no master do not worry about me but you are going to come back here i shall return or else tell me where we are to meet it is useless for i shall be home in an hour patou went in search of the eatables with an appetite which in him as in the case of the king no events could alter however serious they might be while Belay proceeded to the waterside to do what we know he had hardly arrived on the spot before a pebble fell followed by another and some more teaching him that what petion apprehended had come to pass and that he was a prisoner to the royalists so he had flown according to his instructions to the assembly which had claimed the mayor as we have described petion liberated had only to walk through the house to get back to the mayor's office leaving his carriage in the tuileries yard to represent him for his part billet went home and found ange finishing his supper any news asked he nothing except that day is breaking and the sky is the color of blood end of chapter ten recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter eleven of the countess of charny by alexandre dumas translated by henry l williams this librivox recording is in the public domain in the morning the early sunbeams shone on two horsemen riding at a walking pace along the deserted waterside by the tuileries they were colonel mandat and his aide at one a m he was summoned to the city hall and refused to go 
but on the order being renewed more peremptorily at two, Attorney Roederer said to him, "'Mark, Colonel, that under the law the commander of the National Guard is to obey the city government.' He decided to go, ignorant of two things. In the first place, forty-seven sections of the forty-eight had joined to the town rulers each three commissioners, with orders to work with the officials and, quote, save the country, unquote. Mandat expected to see the old board as before, and not at all, to behold a hundred and forty-one fresh faces. Again, he had no idea of the order from this same board to clear the new bridge of cannon and vacate St. John's Arcade, an order so important that Danton and Manuel personally had superintended its execution. Consequently, on reaching the Pont Neuf, Mandat was stupefied to find it utterly deserted. He stopped and sent his aide to scout. In ten minutes this officer returned with the word that he saw no guns or national guards, while the neighborhood was as lonesome as the bridge. Mandat continued his way, though he perhaps ought to have gone back to the palace. But men, like things, must wend whither their destiny impels. Proportionably to his approach to the city hall, he seemed to enter into liveliness. In the same way as the blood in some organizations leaves the extremities cold and pale on rushing back to fortify the heart, so all the movement and heat, the revolution, in short, was around the city hall, the seat of popular life, the heart of that great body Paris. He stopped to send his officer to the Arcade, but the National Guard had been withdrawn from there, too. He wanted to retrace his steps, but the crowd had packed in behind him, and he was carried like a waif on the wave, up the hall steps. "'Stay here,' he said to his follower, "'and if evil befalls me, run and tell them at the palace.' Manda yielded to the mob and was floated into the grand hall where he met strange and stern faces. It was the insurrection complete, demanding an account of the conduct of this man, who had not only tried to crush it in its development, but to strangle it in its birth. One of the members of the commune, the dread body which was to stifle the assembly and struggle with the convention, advanced and in the general's name asked, by whose order did you double the palace guard the mayor of paris show that order i left it at the tuileries so that it might be carried out during my absence why did you order out the cannon because i set the battalion on the march and the field pieces move with the regiment where is petion he was at the palace when I last saw him. A prisoner? No, he was strolling about the gardens. The interrogation was interrupted here by a new member bringing an unsealed letter of which he asked leave to make communication. Munda had no need to do more than cast a glance on this note to acknowledge that he was lost. He recognized his own writing. It was his order to the commanding officer at St. John's Arcade, sent at one in the morning, 
for him to attack in the rear the mob making for the palace, while the battalion on Newbridge attacked it in flank. This order had fallen into the commune's hands after the dismissal of the soldiers. The examination was over. For what could be more damning than this letter in any admissions of the accused? The council decided that Mandat should be imprisoned in the abbey. The tale goes that the chairman of the board, in saying, Remove the prisoner, made a sweep of the hand, edged downward like chopping with an axe. As the guillotine was not in use then, it must have been an arranged sign, perhaps by the invisibles, whose grand copt had divined that instrument. At all events, the results show that the sign was taken to imply death. Hardly had Mandat gone down three of the city steps before a pistol-shot shattered his skull at the very instant when his son ran toward him. Three years before, the same reception had met Flacella. Mandat was only wounded, but as he rose, he fell again with a score of pike wounds. The boy held out his hands and wailed for his father, but none paid any heed to him. Presently, in the bloody ring where bare arms plunged amid flashing pikes and sword, a head was seen to surge up detached from the trunk. The boy swooned. The aide-de-camp galloped back to the Tuileries to report what he had witnessed. The murderers went off in two gangs. One took the body to the river to throw it in. The other carried the head through the streets. This was going on at four in the morning. Let us proceed the aid to the Tuileries and see what was happening. Having confessed, and made easy about matters since his conscience was tranquilized, the king, unable to resist the cravings of nature, went to bed. But we must say that he lay down dressed. On the alarm bells ringing more loudly and the roll of the drums beating the revire, he was roused. Colonel Chesney to whom Mandat had left his powers, awoke the monarch to have him address the National Guards, and by his presence and some timely words revive their enthusiasm. The king rose but half awake, dull and staggering. He was wearing a powdered wig, and he had flattened all the side he had lain upon. The hairdresser could not be found, so he had to go out with the wig out of trim. Notified that the king was going to show himself to the defenders, the queen ran out from the council hall where she was. In contrast with the poor sovereign, whose dim sight sought no one's glance, whose mouth muscles were flabby and palpitating with involuntary twitches, while his violet coat suggested he was wearing mourning for majesty, the queen was burning with fever, although pale. Her eyes were red, though dry. She kept close to this phantom of monarchy, who came out in the day instead of midnight with owlish blinking eyes. She hoped to inspire him with her overflow of life, strength, and courage. All went well enough while this exhibition was in the rooms, though the National Guards mixed in with noblemen, seeing their ruler close to this poor, flaccid, heavy man, who had so badly failed on a similar occasion at Varennes, wondered if this really was the monarch whose poetical legend the women and the priests were already beginning to weave. This was not the one they had expected to see. The aged Duke of Mailly, 
with one of those good intentions destined to be another paving stone for down below drew his rapier and sinking down at the foot of the king vowed in a quavering voice to die he and the old nobility which he represented for the grandson of henry the fourth here were two blunders the national guards had no great sympathy for the old nobility and they were not here to defend the descendant of henry the fourth but the constitutional king so in reply to a few shouts of hail to the king cheers for the nation burst forth on all sides something to make up for this coolness was sought the king was urged to go down into the royal yard alas the poor potentate had no will of his own disturbed at his meals and cheated with only one hour's sleep instead of seven he was but an automaton receiving impetus from outside its material nature who gave this impetus the queen a woman of nerve who had neither slept nor eaten some unhappy characters fail in all they undertake when circumstances are beyond their level instead of attracting dissenters louis the sixteenth in going up to them seemed expressly made to show how little glamour majesty can lend a man who has no genius or strength of mind here as in the rooms when the royalists managed to get up a shout of long live the king an immense hurrah for the nation replied to them the royalists being dull enough to persist the patriots overwhelmed them with no 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 other ruler than the nation and the king almost supplicating added yes my sons the nation and the monarch make but one henceforward bring the prince whispered marie antoinette to princess elizabeth perhaps the sight of a child may touch them while they were looking for the dauphin the king continued the sad review the bad idea struck him to appeal to the artillerists who were mainly republicans if the king had the gift of speech-making he might have forced the men to listen to him though their belief led them astray for it would have been a daring step and it might have helped him to face the cannon but there was nothing exhilarating in his words or gesture he stammered the royalists tried to cover his stammerings with the luckless hail of long live the king already twice a failure and it nearly brought about a collision some cannoneers left their places and rushed over to the king threatening him with their fists and saying do you think that we will shoot down our brothers to defend a traitor like you the queen drew the king back here comes the dauphin called out voices long live the hope of the realm nobody took up the cry the poor boy had come in at the wrong time as theatrical language says he had missed his cue the king went back into the palace a downright retreat almost a flight when he got to his private rooms he dropped puffing and blowing into an easy chair stopping by the door the queen looked round for some support she spied charny standing up by the door of her own rooms and she went over to him oh, all is lost she moaned i am afraid so my lady replied the life guardsman 
Can we not still flee? It is too late. What is left for us to do, then? We can but die, responded Charny, bowing. The queen heaved a sigh and went into her own rooms. End of chapter 11. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.